Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever by the other half of your host, Gabriel Krausak. <laughs> Very whispery this morning, and we are recording in the Very... morning for a change. Yeah, it's it's a hot water and coffee morning, uh, fresh on a Friday. Mm. Uh, well, at least there is. I like um, your. your... Go ahead. You see now, because it's the morning, we're both so polite that there is dead air <laughs> as we both yeah, we stand can't in front of the door and say, as we normally do. After you, sir. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, after you. <laughs> no, no, no. I insist. Please, you go first. <laughs> this is. I think this is one of the terrible things about like Zoom morning meetings, is that people kind of. I don't know. I remember in a James could see a, one of the, I think it was Disgrace, uh, Professor Laurie, whatever he is, um, the sort of UWC language professor who's secretly writing an opera uh, and uh, ends up sleeping with one of his students. He sort of describes, he, he the book starts out with like David Leary uh, has, for a man of his age, 52, sort of solved the problem of sex. Um, and, and that really means he sleeps with a, a hooker once a week. And, and part of the reason that he justifies this is he says, you know, I just real, I got to the stage in my life where I realized I needed to spare humanity from my morning persona because he wakes up in the morning with such a grump uh, <laughs> <laughs> that he can't oh, just, like, separate bedrooms. <laughs> and I think a lot of people, I think that morning people... Are often just are just hiding their grumpiness in a different way, right? And the and the super politeness sometimes of the morning is just like a way of you're still getting into the world, and you don't want to you don't want your true id uh, stomping all over. So you you're like you're. <laughs> I'm very much a, not a morning person, um, so you know, talking on to you know what's going to be probably quite a serious long conversation uh, is it's my brain has to rewire slightly but uh, i'm sure we'll manage i'm sure we'll manage mm, i think it uh, is a bit like uh, uh this yeah. is this is actually a hotly requested episode uh based on the comment section of the daily french show where i saw one of us uh saying that they were jonesing for some of the smoothest amarula for their mind Ooh. yesterday Yes. Mm-hmm. So, as you know promised, well with coffee. We are you know what goes well with morning Friday coffee? A little smooth amarula for your mind. Yeah. It does. It does. I mean, it's like amarula and coffee. I mean, amarula and a lot of things is, is great, but amarula and coffee is particularly nice, especially when camping. Oh, it's summer. They really need to You're sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, did we need a. Yeah, some camping equipment guys and amarula. We're going to reach out. It is. I'm. I'm glad that someone's been jonesing. I. I think we're going to get to the second. But uh, Nicholas did a um, a briefing for the Center for Risk Analysis, which is sort of the IRR's uh, trim pencil skirted sister, uh, the the business end of things. And um, yeah, I think it's. I think it's uh, information packed. Uh, the analysis is lucid. I think we're going to maybe tease up whether we disagree about some points, but 
it has been an exciting week because America has had its midterms and it's the world's largest, you know, it's the superpower. We live in Pax Americana. Uh, like it or low that uh, there is great but, but international significance to what happens. Not there. Just and that. I think there... it's kind of exciting. Their politics is also kind of extra, I think, because they're sort of national characters, to put it so crudely, uh, has a has quite a lot of drama to it. And Americans love the drama in their elections. Uh, if there isn't any, they'll create some. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's made for TV. It's really, it's, uh, it's delish. Um, so, but, but shall, we, shall we get into the, to the first topic that we wanted to go over? Which yes, is we wanted also, to talk about something else also from the US, uh, which is, I think, really, this one really is going to have a big impact on us, depending on how it goes, I think, since it's, so do you want to lay it out, Gabriel? Okay, so um, another long awaited tro- a couple of cases, you know, I mean, sort of waiting for, I was waiting for the Mississippi uh, Roe versus Wade things from about five years ago, and in the for Supreme this one. Court. In the Supreme Court of Appeal of the United States, SCOTUS, their constitutional court. I've been waiting for this one kind of since I was in America um, because my best friend, one of my best friends and roommates, br- brothers, uh, went to Harvard. Uh, and as Princeton fellows, we sort of, you know, we had to Harvard. rush the Harvard boys, the Harvard boys. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodly golly. How silly Harvard is. Um who I don't know the Harvard Harvard somehow always seemed new money to me, which is hilarious because it's like a flipping old university. But I think it's because it's like Princeton is the most like university town. Well, look, no compared business. to Oxford, it is. It's all very new, money. exactly, exactly. But it's but it's not just that. It's also because Harvard has I think I think partly the business school and the law school, big time the law school. It's got like quite an abrasive reputation. And I think some of that does filter through into certain aspects of the student body. It's a funny thing to think, but like, anyway, maybe, maybe that's just silly. Anyway, this, it certainly was the case, even when I was in the States a decade ago, that, um, that, that Harvard had a, a slightly more stringent reputation for turning for... For, you know, had a reputation for having a brusque attitude institutionally to nerdy Asian Americans. And by Asian Americans, Asian Americans is like an awkward racial term. And this is brought out in the court because Afghanistan. And yeah, because it's like two thirds of humanity or something. <laughs> and, and there's clearly like Farsi, you know, there are clearly, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's clearly like, not it's one like, race group, uh, but it's sort of used as one race group. Arabs, Persians, and this is a race. Yeah, yeah, Asians from 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 China, Indians. Like <laughs> this is there's not much connecting these things. No, um, but the the case that was brought forward against Harvard was that they were discriminating discriminating against Asian Americans. Um, and I think the, the most telling data point in favor of that is that there's this personality part of the application when you apply to get into Harvard 
you know, it's your academics, uh, cultural activities, community service, athletics, whatever. There's, you know, so many factors that they take into account. One of them is like a kind of a personality thing. And so really early on, as a form of triage, you know, if they're getting 60,000 applications for 1,600 slots, you know, they've got like a 2% acceptance rate, something like that, like Princeton. Um, uh, they... Uh, they want to get rid of some of the applications. And you're only really applying if you're already super smart and getting super high grades. So some of it's going to be, you know, if you're a B student, you're just cut out unless there's something extraordinary. Um, but some of it is let's look at the, you know, personality. Does this person and the, and the traits that they rate people for after reading their essays and, and looking over their CVs and resumes and so on is like kindness uh, openness, creativity, you know, these sort of intangible things that I think <laughs> we do judge yeah, one another by. Ephemeral, yeah. difficult to measure. Right. Yeah. It's difficult to put but, it on a score sheet kind of stuff. Yeah. it's It seems really weird. You're like three out of 10 in kindness. But then you think like, you know, I don't know, there's Jordan Peterson personality tests, the psychometric test. I don't know. You know, people kind of are into that. And I think there is something um, to be said for quantifying the qualitative um I, it's definitely something you've got to take with a grain of salt it reminds me of dead poet society where you know robin williams starts out with a textbook in this like stuffy american fancy uh, pre-ivy league high school and the textbook says you know poetry can be measured on you know technique and significance and you put technique on the x-axis and significance on the y-axis and you can chart out a graph of the value of any poem. And so we see something like Lord Byron uh, is, you know, uh, ten out, uh, 9 out of 10 on technique, wonderful use of meter and rhyme, but only 2 out of 10 in terms of significance, because after all, he was writing poems about, you know, gallivanting around the countryside and sleeping with young damsels. This is not very serious stuff. So he gets a sort of, you know, then you multiply two by 10, you get the area of the rectangle and it's, it's, it's a 20. Uh, but Shakespeare is a 10 out of 10 on technique and in significance. And so it's a hundred. And now you know how to mathematically measure the excellence of a poem. And Robin Williams is like, okay, so what I, makes the class read it out draws it on the board, and then says, you know, I want you to take that page and rip it out your book. And they're like, what? It's like, I want you to rip the whole chapter out of your book. I want none of that. I don't want you measuring poetry by number. Um, and, I, and, and he's got a point. You know, we, we as humans, aesthetically, uh, there's, a, there's a beautiful, intangible way that we engage with each other. You can't record. At the same time, there's something interesting about the fact that you can kind of sort of rank people in terms of kindness or openness or neuroticism or whatever. And so they do this. And the scary thing is that Asian Americans come out as like, I think like two standard deviations, less uh, with lower scores in terms of personality than everyone else. So it's like the rankings are like Asian Americans get like on average like a five out of ten for personality, and then white Americans get like a seven out of ten, and Hispanics get an eight out of ten, and Black Americans get a nine out of ten, and it starts looking like 
Are you okay? There's two ways yeah. to explain seems, it. Seems like there's something else going on here that's maybe not the personalities. <laughs> maybe, maybe, and I and I actually do want to say this. Maybe it is the case that you know the it's a it's a lot of very few uh, out of all the black Americans that there are, or all the black people in the world that there are that are applying to Harvard. It's a small fraction. And out of the black group, it's it's just disproportionately the case that you've got really strong personalities that are applying. And maybe out of the Asian group, um, you know, the, the people that are applying tend to be uh, uh, more inhibited, prim, academically strong. And and so maybe that maybe this maybe there is no bias. Um, I think at the IRR, it's our duty to remember that inequality of outcomes is not sufficient to prove uh, a biased process. That all being right. said, it does make you wonder. It's, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's certainly, that's certainly possible. Um, I think we made the point from a Thomas Sowell point recently that, you know, looking for even distributions of racial groups in, in economies is, is always a, a fraught activity because they exist pretty much nowhere. But um yeah, no. This, this. Uh, th there are perhaps some simpler explanations that not are not just simpler in the um, that they're easier sense, but simpler as in that they also have evidence. They might have some evidence behind them as well. Okay, so, so, so I don't know. I, I think that's right. I, I don't know how to get through this case, but I, I think just casually chatting through it is, is is maybe a good way. On on that point. Um, the tricky thing is that Harvard's system has been taken to court already at the at a lower level. You know, to get to the SCOTUS, their constitutional court, you have to go through lower courts. And two lower courts, the district the you know their appeals court and the and the and the entry level federal court both looked at this evidence and said it's not coming we 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 this this doesn't prove that there's any bias the fact that Asians are coming out like half as kind or half as extroverted whatever the thing you know overall adding them all together they're coming out as like uh, with half the personality points as yeah, black half Americans personalities. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound really weird. They said that's not evidence of bias. So you have had two courts that have looked at this. And America's courts, I, you know, I think sometimes get it wrong, but I don't think that anyone should I think it's a mistake to be like, oh well, they have no idea what they're talking about. So so the first thing is like, well, the courts and for the Supreme Court of the United States, there's a rule that says if two courts below you have said something about a fact, they've made a finding of fact, and they've agreed on that finding of fact. You can overturn that finding effect only if it's totally bonkers. So there's a legal term for totally bonkers, uh, uh, and it's it's you know sometimes a difficult standard to evaluate. But the point is, the SCOTUS can't turn that over very easily. And in the deliberations, and the Harvard deliberations were two and a half hours. I've listened, listened to it a couple of times. There was also the University of North Carolina before that on the same day, same kind of case, affirmative action at American universities. Is it okay? Is it not okay? I suppose that's the headline I was supposed to say in the beginning. Uh, and I listened to that for, you know, that's two hours. I listened to that a couple of times too. 
there was very little contest about the facts. The judges asked a lot of questions, like hypothetically, this and that, um, sort of circling around this issue. But there, there wasn't a lot about challenging the facts. So I'm not sure that the Supreme Court is going to have what it takes to challenge the facts. Now, there's another complication, which is that the U.S. government came in. The U.S. government can, or the federal government can always send one of its lawyers into any sort of constitutional case or any very serious case, kind of as a friend of the court, kind of as more than a friend of the court, not a respondent, like not we're accusing you because this is not between, uh, this is between private parties, a student group, uh, uh, partly made up of Asian Americans complaining that they're being discriminated against and Harvard, a, pri a university, they're challenging each other. But the government can come in and say, you know, this is the ex executive, the president's people, they can come in and say which way they think it should go and what the court should take away from this. And they came in earlier at the lower courts and said, uh, dude, this is racist. This is some racist BS. You can't be saying the Asians have half the personality of the blacks. That's just not a thing you can say. And you know, a little bit more than that too. Um, but then they came in at the higher level and were like, well, actually, we're coming in on the other side. We're coming in on Harvard's side. And so then there's a question about, okay, well, what's happened? Is this just because, you know, the former attorney general was a Trump appointee and this is a Biden appointee? And it looked not right. great. That, that's a problem that, that kind of stuff that ends up in the constitutional court often has, which is that um, I remember once getting a lecture from an American professor who... He was being flippant and he wasn't entirely being serious, but he said something along the lines of, oh, I don't talk about constitutional law because that's politics, not law. Now, I don't agree with him, but you can see yeah. how some people can come to that conclusion. Well, and this is not just constitution. This is like a finding of fact. This is like, you know, on the facts, was Harvard right or wrong? And and the facts are political in this sense. But but the the, the attorney general was... was, was um, I, I think did a decent job of saying, you know, that's that's not really fair. Um, the the government came in and made its argument that this policy was uh, unfair discrimination on the facts. The court found against that, found that the evidence didn't add up the way that the attorney general had had ruled it. And you know, because there's two courts that have found it, the two court rule holds. And and so we're just going along with the thought that the court knows better than us how to judge. And that's the point of courts is to make judgments. And uh, and so we're not changing on the basis of politics. We're changing because the court made this decision. And 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 that's obviously adding pressure to the Supreme Court to say, look, guys, if you want to rule against the fact finding, um, then you've got to be really careful. Here's the other thing that's really complicated about the fact, the this this uneven personality score, is that the university ends up saying something like, look, we can't tell you everything about how come. This isn't discrimination because part of what's going on here is that we've got like a secret source and American law, <laughs> you know, there's. <laughs> okay. There's now like this, this is where you really start. Like it's, it all sounded very reasonable up till now. And it's like, Ooh, no, a secret personality source. Hold on. Wait a minute. <laughs> Dude, it's sinister as can be. And part, but part of the secret source, um, it's mad. Part of the secret source uh, notion, I think, is that there are that there's privileged information that's being put out there. That this, it's not just like KFC um, gets to not tell you how it makes its its chicken better. It's also like you know there are chill, there are students here, there are people 
um, that haven't necessarily signed over, waived the right to Harvard to be able to hand over these documents to third parties. And so there's like a kind of attorney-client privilege or like, the you know, you, you talk to your psychologist, you talk to your lawyer, you talk to your priest. The government can't come in after that and be like, hey, you know, we want to figure out what's going on here. Tell us what was said. Um, likewise, in a university admissions uh, application, there's privileged information. And so the judicial peak procedures do mean that, like, you know, there's things the court's been able to examine that the public can't scrutinize. And, and it, yeah, dude, I, I, it's, it's, it's comical, but it is also, I think it is reasonable. Um, and it's potentially, it just means that you, there's this sort of leap of faith problem. And here's why the leap of faith problem is, is really bad. In other words, you have to figure out how much do you trust the lower courts to have done their jobs properly? Um, and, and how much do you, how secure are you that the other side's lawyers have, have been able to double check on Harvard's lawyers so that there's no higgledy-piggledy where they're sort of hiding significant information that can be revealed behind a, a, a phony application of, of uh, this right to non-disclosure. Here's why. So, so I am inclined to trust the courts and I'm inclined, inclined to trust the other side's lawyers, really well-paid, really smart people. Now here's the worry. Harvard invented the current system of university admissions with the personality tests and the holistic evaluation of a, you know, before 1920, Here's how university admissions worked in the Ivy League. Here's how they worked in Oxford and Cambridge. It's like, well, do you know someone? You, you get it. Here's how they worked in the Ivy League. You send in your, your, your results. Right. They, were, they were much more like the medieval guilds, which the first universities originally yeah. were created to be. So, so it was medieval guilds who you know. Then in terms of Ivy League, what you know, it is just your results. It is basically like, you know, if you're the top in your class, you can get in. If you're the bottom of the class, you can't get in. Um, and then a little bit of extra dean's list stuff for, uh, which is like the guild thing. The dean's list means the dean gets a special list he can make of people that he wants to get or kinds of people he wants to get. Sons and daughters of rich people or politicians or celebrities or you know, people who are going to donate. People gave or, a lot of money to the university. Yeah. And, uh, and then athletes. And so you had these different interests, but they were, they were, they were compartmentalized and separate. And then Harvard in, 19, in the 1920s said, dude, this is, we're not taking in a GPA. Uh, a metric average we're not taking in an athlete we're not taking in a donor's daughter son there were no daughters at the time we're taking in a, an applicant which is a whole person and so what we want to do is do a holistic evaluation where there are like many criteria and you get rated on all of them right like maybe Why there's did- someone who's 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 a little bit behind someone who might get get in but you know that's only because they spend all of their time looking after puppies, rescuing orphans, uh, building the future of cancer treatment. Uh, <laughs> and so the, their marks are slightly lower because they do all these other things. And you kind of might want that person in your university. Yeah, exactly. So they had this beautiful, holistic approach. Dude, why did they do that? To keep out the juice. Uh, Yes. <laughs> this is a fact. This is an established fact. Yes. Harvard like, invented like, the holistic evaluation thing because they were like too many Jews around here. Too many Jews in yes. Harvard. Yes. Uh, they're so clever. <laughs> they hang Which is out why there's a lot of 
which, which explains why there's a lot of Jewish groups um, backing the uh, or, or kind of Jewish commentators and Jewish groups and uh, backing the the, the 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 people who say this is discrimination because um, in some of their minds we've seen this show before. Uh, yeah, dude, it's a, it's a hundred years later. It was the Jews back then. Now it's people who you know who's it was Semites and now it's Han and now it's uh, Sinos uh, from anti-Semitism to anti-Sinoism. Right. Um, well, it's a, and Indians too, and Indians. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, so, although I think the personality thing does, I think it gets. I kind of get the sense it gets more extreme the further east you go. The the kind of blockages. But um, so, so 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 you know, it's it's difficult to know what the facts are because. They're secretive applications because there's a kind of commercial interest, a business interest in like, you know, not saying everything also about how we manage to create the best classes in the world um, because they invented the holistic system in order to disguise the fact that they were trying to exclude Jews. And the same system is allegedly being used now to exclude uh, inter alia Asian Americans. Um and and that's just the facts. So the facts are already complicated. North Carolina case, the fact, University of North Carolina, the facts aren't as significant. There, it's more straightforward that the university has this policy. I mean, in both cases, the university has this policy. You take a box, and if you say black or Hispanic, then you get a bonus point. And... In a way, if you put the particular facts of Harvard aside, the question is, is it constitutional in America to give someone a bonus point in their application just because they're black or just because they're Hispanic? And, and it's a difficult question. Partly, I mean, I don't know. Nick, I've already told you what my, what my take is, but I'll just say my, like, my TLDR take is, much like uh, with the racial gerrymandering thing we discussed last time, I'm a non-racialist. I think that non-racialism is the, is the goal. I think it's the best method too. In other words, I think the way to get the outcomes that you're looking for is by judging people's character and relevant features that aren't their race. Um, I don't think that uh, affirmative action cookie cutting gets you where you want to go i think it ends up backfiring now that rule i have said and i'm you know sometimes i feel like the only did an institute but you know i look back to john kane berman uh in the 70s sort of condoning steve biko and, and supporting steve biko's establishment of black only student unions which is clearly racialist it's you know it's much harsher than even diskin or um or harvard uh you know, I think that there are circumstances in which you've got to go blacks only or you've got to go pro-black. You've got to go affirmative action. There definitely are such circumstances. Or And it can be pro-white, it can be pro-Asian, pro-Semitic. Pro you know, I think if you're in the ghettos of Frankfurt or whatever in the 1930s and you want to, you know, be like, you know, we're Semites in it together and we're especially upset with uh, Semites who are, collaborating with the Nazis, we, you know, you, 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 you turn your race into a, a code of 
moral norm. You, you, you like, you know, this. It's bad to to do this. It's extra bad to do it if you're a Jew or something like that. I get that. I think that it's. I think that it's surely reasonable in certain circumstances. Personally, I sometimes wonder whether it's always better to just go with transcendental uh, morals or or other um, groups uh, of of ethical significance, of of spirited esteem significance to to go forward. You know, national groups, class groups, uh, religious groups, um, as opposed to racial groups, Jew as opposed to Semite as your as your co-locator but that's a that's an aside point that's the background point i am a non-racialist in this instance you know i i think that california is the best california had a referendum we talked about it in 2020 they said should right. there be affirmative action at universities and the people voted and they said no no yeah. racial considerations at universities i love that i really do that brought an actual little sparkly tear to my little silly eye because it's inspiring that humans made the right choice there in the majority, and that that and that makes all the difference. Indeed, it's always <laughs> nice when democracy does what you're hoping Deliver. it does. Democracy delivers. Yeah. Okay, but so here's the thing. So I know how I want Harvard and UNC to behave. Whether they're forced to or it's just voluntary, I want them to not be discriminating for or against people on the basis of race. But that doesn't mean I think the court should rule against them. And the first time I listened to this case, I discussed this with some of my colleagues, you know, I was like very excited. I listened to both cases for five hours and I was like, oh my word, the, 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 the so-called conservative justices are, are going to rule against Harvard. They're going to rule against UNC. They're going to overturn these previous rulings since the 1970s saying that affirmative action is okay in university ad admissions. In the same way that they overturned Roe versus Wade, they're going to overturn this. And that makes me very excited. And by the way, The Economist, which is, you know, sometimes amazing, sometimes it's a bit woke. Uh, the Economist is like, their reading is that it's going to be overturned and that's a good thing because then you can implement a policy like the IRRs, uh, uh, economic empowerment for the disadvantaged, you know, a needs-based thing where you, you, you really focus on trying to bring in clever poor people. Uh, and, they, and they reckon, you know, that's going to help. Um, uh, address the kinds of concerns that affirmative action has brought to mind. But as they say, you know, it means that like a rich uh, uh, son of two Nigerian Americans who both went to Harvard, who now himself or herself wants to go to Harvard, isn't getting a black point ahead of the poor white Appalachian. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, di racial diversity is still going to be an outcome that you're going to achieve. But it's but th there's going to be uh, it, it's going to be done in a better way. Uh, it's going to bring about better results to to bring about real diversity or a real access of diversity that's sort of underplayed at places like Harvard. And at Princeton, they pointed out, like at Princeton, sixty percent of the university comes from the top one percent of the income group. I don't know if that's really right, but it's you know something like that at Harvard. Maybe that's Harvard. Anyway, well, I think I think it's because a lot of these Ivy League universities have uh, kind of two classes. They have legacy admissions which is a significant chunk. And then they have the sort of scholarship people who are, uh, who, who, who are the, the ones considered mostly by the system that we're talking about now. So, you know, so I don't know how true that is. Like Princeton was the first place to have um, 
need blind admissions. So when you applied, you didn't, no one knew how rich you or poor, whether you could afford it or not. And then once you get in, they guarantee you enough financial aid to get through. And what they quickly realized was that, um, in fact, the reason they did that is they wanted to avoid how things are at Oxford. Now, all of my friends who've been to Oxford and Cambridge say that that's how things are at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, but that's not how things were at Princeton because they've got much more money per student, much more money, uh, orders of magnitude more. And so what they do is like if your parents are middle class and they can afford like $10,000 a year comfortably um, to send you to university, but they can't afford $50,000 a year or $80,000, whatever it is now, then you get charged $10,000 a year. And if they can afford 30, you get charged 30. And if they can afford nothing, you, you get charged nothing. If, if you can't even afford to fly there, they'll fly you there kind of a thing. So there's this sliding scale. So it's not like, you know, poor scholarship kids and rich kids who can afford it. There's this like right, between right. middle class I get, chunk. I get what you're saying. Which they kind of pioneered and, and, and have grown and grown. And, and yes, they have, they have it the best because they have the most money per student. Um, uh, but I think Harvard's been getting there anyway. So look, I, yeah, I, I, I don't want to overplay how, how much of a difference it would make. It would make a huge difference in South Africa to, to at a general employment, procurement, business, and education level, go needs-based rather than race-based. Um, because here we really do live with like, you know, a, a kind of elite and like a tiny middle class and a huge underclass. So the 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 stats on this I think are, um, uh, and they're recorded as having legacy affiliation, which I presume just means you know you you know someone in your family, in your went, family. To, went to there. Yeah, fourteen um, percent of Yale's incoming class, uh, about eight percent. Sorry, fifteen um, percent of Harvard's incoming class. Yes. So it's so it's a significant chunk, but it's not like half or anything like that. So. Okay, so anyway, this is just to say, you know, even the economist is kind of welcoming the notion that these affirmative action laws are going to be struck down, that the court's going to decide these conservative judges, you know, some appointed by Trump, some appointed by George Bush, whatever, uh, you know, these judges are going to strike this down and they're going to say no more fingers on the scale with regards to race at Harvard and UNC. And, and that's going to scare others away too. And part of the reason they say it's a good idea is because most black and Hispanic people in America don't want affirmative action laws at universe, uh, policies at universities. So, you know, it's the same kind of IRR argument. Like, look at the poll. The kind of people in whose name this is being done uh, are not into it. The people who are into it, as The Economist once again says, it's like, you know, you've got a, a gross system at Harvard uh, and with with legacy ends and this and that. and uh, And to make it, you know, uh, to perfume it, you you kind of do this r racial diversity game on top, uh, and and that becomes the distraction and and the point of contention. But really, the you know, insofar as you've got ad admissions issues, they're elsewhere, and 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 let's get on the program. So that all being said, you know, it's like I want it from a very principled perspective. Even um, publications like The Economist that uh, endorsed Ramaphosa which I could never have done in 2019 because inter alia of his sort of attitude towards affirmative action in South Africa. Um, he was, he was asking for more BE at a time when I think we needed less BE. Even the economist is saying it's a good idea to drop it. That all being said, 
after listening to it the second time, um, I wondered whether it would be a mistake to cancel it, whether it would be effectively a kind of judicial activism. This exact thing that I've talked about Stephen Breyer doing. Now, you know, the judges close their eyes and they're like, what do we want? Well, we want race neutral. And then they open their eyes and they go, look in the law for a way to justify it um, in order to bring it about. Right. And that's cheating the democratic process. That's cheating, you know, that's cheating the law. I don't know if that's what's happening, but that's my worry now. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that that's something that, that's an outcome that you definitely want to avoid, um, even if, you know, <clears throat> we really would like to see non-racial laws. Um, unfortunately, you know, you're right that the argument may have to be won through good old persuasion and not through uh, <laughs> the might of the law, the might of the, the high, The high priests, they're sitting in the tower kind of in their robes going, yeah, oh, well, no. we've reinterpreted the tea leaves and this time it's coming out. Way. And, and and of course, one of the reasons for that, just from a pragmatic point of view, is that if the high priest can interpret it one way this time, they can maybe interpret it another way the next time when the court has changed a little bit. Um, and that's something you really want to avoid. They can flip so, it. Yeah. yeah, look, I mean, you know, I, I, I tend to be dismissive of, of the, the kind of some of the, the lines of legal reasoning, mostly because I'm intellectually lazy. But secondly, but mostly <laughs> also because I... Uh, I think that, yeah, courts can be a bit, you know, a clever enough lawyer can find a thread in anything. And so I think you're definitely right that it, it could well be. And, I mean, the U.S. has had this long history of, I mean, they pretty much invented affirmative action, right? Uh, because they had this problem of a, of, of a part of the country that was just so discriminatory that you kind of had to come up with a way to um, open up these institutions. Uh and and so I wouldn't be surprised okay. if they yeah. Yeah. So so what you're doing, so I haven't really talked about the the lines of reasoning that I think the courts are most likely to use. Um and that I think maybe are spurious. Uh, but you've you've hit on the first one. And maybe the most important one. So just briefly, because I don't want to get too technical, um partly because I haven't read the papers. I've just listened to the oral arguments twice. So it's like five hours of arguments and it's quite dense. And, you know, I Google a couple of things if, if I'm not sure about them. But it's really, if I was, you know, going to do this 100% properly, I should read a 1,000 pages. I've, you know, the, the few court cases I've covered properly, it's like you have to read a 1,000 pages well, to really you, cover court cases. Not, not to harsh your matter, but you aren't actually being paid to do this. <laughs> the yeah, people exactly. who are reading this are literally being paid to do this. <laughs> So I so so take it all with a grain of salt, um, but the overall structure. Uh, excuse me while I uh, pour myself a, a water. The overall structure is pretty um, straightforward. There's the Constitution of America, and the relevant constitutional section is the Fourteenth Amendment. Famous right. amendment happened after the Civil War. Uh, to end slavery that had been specifically targeted against black Americans. And uh, the 14th Amendment said, you know, we guarantee equal protection uh, before the law. No one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. And the law shall provide equal protection. So there's the due process clause and the equal protection clause. There's also due process in like some other amendments, the fourth, one of the, earlier ones from the original Bill of Rights, but 
just by the way, as a small aside, the equal protection clause in this other case that I was listening to about foreign cubed and foreign squared lawsuits, which basically means like, can I be sued? <laughs> can I do a small tangent here, Nick, before I jump on the thing? Yeah, yeah, go, this ahead, is like, go ahead, go ahead. Dude, this is like, this is, this is what makes me, I don't know, this just gets to me. This is like right down my alley. There's this thing where, you know, America in some ways is like one country and in some ways it's like the EU, right? It's like a loose, it's like a, it's like a bunch of different countries that happen to have the same currency. And, and sometimes you got to think about it the one way, sometimes you got to think about it the other. And one of the things is, you know, clearly, if you're in South Africa and you and you do, you do something wrong, you can kind of get sued anywhere in South Africa, because our courts all fall under the Supreme Court of Appeal, one court for the whole country, the Constitutional Court, one court for the whole country. And okay, maybe you want to get sued in in the Western Cape High Court rather than the KwaZulu Natal High Court because you and the person you're suing are both in the Western Cape, so you don't want to go to KZN. That's crazy. There might be logistical concerns. And if your lawyers are really clever, they might be like, hey, dude, let's rather stay away from the Western Cape because, uh, you know, uh, John Flaupe was, you know, has literally been impeached uh, and he was the head of that court system. So there, right. there's some and issues. I, I, the, the, the DA, like, said at a certain point in time, if we take a case to the Western Cape High Court. <laughs> just, you know, exactly. We're going we're gonna to take it. We're going to put it in the toaster. It's going to come out as ash. Let's rather go somewhere else. Um, so that's not really a great consideration, but sometimes you've got to be realistic. But obviously, if you're in Germany, you don't want to be sued in a French court. That doesn't make sense. Like if you and I are both in Germany and we smack each other on the head and now we have to figure out what the lawsuit is, we don't go to France in the same way that if we were in, in, in Boxburg, we might still end up going to Joburg. Uh, <laughs> insert Boxburg joke, but it being a different country, move along. So uh, in, the, in the US, in terms of that question of like, you have a right not to be sued in a state that you don't want to be sued in. So it starts out with like, and then that right can be removed if you live in that state, if you're a business, if you're headquartered in that state, or you were founded in that state, then you can be sued in that state. It's also the, the right is waived if that's the state in which you committed the offense. We actually saw this a little bit in the uh, Elon Musk Twitter thing, right? So Elon Musk kind of for a little while got cold feet about buying Twitter. And then Twitter said, we're going to take you to court. And they said, oh, and it's going to be in Connecticut. And one of the reasons they were really pushing for Connecticut, I think there were some reasonable reasons, but one of the other reasons was because there was a, an apparently uh, a, a judge on the business court there who was, um, shall we say, brisk in her rulings on corporate yeah. issues. And she was known for speed and efficiency and ruthlessness. Yes. So, you know, there you go. And then the other side might challenge that and say, look, we don't belong there. And a foreign cubed case is a case where, like, the offense didn't take place in the state and the plaintiff doesn't reside in the state or isn't headquartered in the state if it's a business and the respondent doesn't reside or, you know, so it's like, you know, I, I hit you on the head in Germany. You live in Italy. I live in France, but then I go sue you 
in Greece because, you know, it's a coin toss in Greece. Like, you know, I know I would lose the case in any place with the proper court system, but if we go to Greece, who knows where right. it's going to go? It's yeah. going to be exciting. That's foreign cue. And it seems pretty wild. Like, how can I sue you in Greece for what you did to me in Italy when I live in Germany and you live in France? It seems far right. Like, and you can do the same thing, you know, like you're a business headquartered in California, founded in or founded in California, headquartered in Delaware, because then you don't have to pay taxes. Uh, you the offense occurs in Ohio, but I sue you in Texas. That's foreign cubed. You know, it's like layers of layers of layers of like this state where I'm suing you just has nothing to do with what's going on. And the court, one of the key arguments is that for an individual person, you can have a foreign cubed uh, jurisdiction. You can be like, no, you, you, can't, you can't refuse to be sued here. You have to be sued here. If I tagged you when you were in the state. So in this situation where you like live in California and you hit me on the head in Washington state and I live in New York, but I really want to sue you in Florida because it's like the Greece of America. If I catch you on holiday in Florida or I get a lawyer or like a sheriff, you know, I, I get like some hired guy to like go to you at the buffet lounge. You're like, you're just drinking shrimp. You're like slobbering like mimosas and having a great time on the side of the beach. And it's like, hey, Nick, we've got some more shrimp here. Do you want, are you Nick Lorna? It's shrimp for you. And you're like, yeah, I'm Nick Lorna. Like, ha, you've been served. That whole <laughs> shtick. The point of that is to try and tag people in states that are, are you know, sympathetic to one kind of side in the case and be like, well, now, we, now it's foreign cubed and now you can't dodge it because we tagged you when you were in the state. Okay, so that makes sense for an individual, it seems. But then for a group, for like a business, that means that like if the business is a big business and it's in all the states, like McDonald's or whatever, you can always tag it. You can always find it on holiday or on a work trip. You can always find it on a work trip in any of the 50 states. So if you get the hot coffee, spill it on your lap. Uh, McDonald's is tax headquartered in Delaware, founded in uh, Ohio, whatever it is, um, California. Yeah, that's from California, I think. <clears throat> the offense occurs, you, you spill the coffee in North Dakota, but there's some weird law in Arizona uh, some that weird makes you state likely system. to win the win the case, right? You can go up to a McDonald's in Arizona and be like, "Hey, are you a McDonald's manager?" Yes. Okay, tag you're it, and so we've tagged the business here. Now you send it to the headquarters, and we're going to sue you here. That kind of seems like it's made the whole notion of uh, there being any way that you can avoid being sued. This notion of a right to not be sued in the in a funny so, jurisdiction. It's like it's where'd that right go? It's out the window. Yeah, it's this kind of shenanigans that makes me talk about why we should only have one single law and an oh, entire, exactly. entirely ridiculous single <laughs> judicial system. Because I think this kind of like very specific, like this is something that rewards knowing the law very well. Dude, uh, I haven't even got to the punchline. Can I tell you? That? And having the bestest <laughs> lawyers in the world. And so it allows you to duck and dive, regardless of the facts of the case, to find the optimal circumstances to put the figure on the scale for you. I think the winning argument is going to be, I'm not sure, but I think the winning argument might be that this is an equal protection clause issue. Uh. <laughs> but, uh, this 14th Amendment. Because the, because the corporate side guys are saying, look, we've got this right not to be sued in a random place. 
and if you allow this tagging thing to apply too far and cubed, then that that writes out the window because any business that's in the whole country can then just be sued anywhere, even if it has nothing to do with the case of the plaintiff. And then the other side is saying, okay, so you're saying an individual has the right not to be sued in a random place, but if they get tagged when they're in that place, that right gets waived. But a business, a, 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 a fictional person, if they get tagged, then the right doesn't get waived. So their, their right is stronger than an individual's right. And the Equal Protection Clause says that's racist, basically. Says that, that everyone must have equal protection before the law. And that was written to say that like black people must be equally protected to white people and women must be equally protected to women. But we're saying it also means that businesses must be equally protected to individuals. Fictional persons must be equally protected to natural persons. <laughs> Otherwise, you're being racist. I think that is flagrantly <laughs> absurd to, to say that the Equal Protection Clause is like protecting fictional persons equally to natural persons just seems mad. I mean, I think that it's a good idea to say that if, if, if I lack this protection, if you know, if someone can pierce this protection for me as an individual, you definitely should be able to pierce it for a group. Um, but to say that we should be equally protected to businesses just seems crazy to me. We should be more protected than businesses. But this goes back to my bugbear, um, which is that this, this this is the Citizens United ruling where um, basically the Supreme Court said ten years ago you can kind of have as much money in politics as you want. There were two parts to that ruling. The one part is they said money is speech. And because there's a free speech right, you can't restrict speech. You also can't restrict how people spend their money on, on politics. Uh, they also said that the free speech right applies to fictional persons in the same way that it applies to individuals. And that's where I think they went wrong. I did my Paul's thesis on like fictional persons and, and why they are in many ways like natural persons, but also why it's crazy town, in my view, to 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 fail to realize that uh, fictional persons are way more dangerous than natural persons in many ways that require different kinds of protection. Um, and that just commonsensically, I mean, dude, if, if we're going to talk about common sense, what a violation of common sense to say, okay, here's McDonald's, here's Nicholas Lorimer. They've got the same rights. Like at a certain level, I mean, I'm protection before the law, dude, that means McDonald's should get the vote. Yeah. They should. <laughs> McDonald's specifically. <laughs> okay. McDonald's exemption. <laughs> if, you know, okay. <laughs> what about Goldman Sachs? You want Goldman Sachs to have the vote? Uh, look, I can think of worse things. You know, there are voters out there who I prefer Goldman Sachs over, but yeah, no, I see your point. You can't treat, like, you, this, this, oh, no, dude. Anyway. Um, back to uh, back to the back to the um, the affirmative action stuff. The point is the same equal protection clause. I think it's crazy to say that you know businesses must be the same equal protection clause is is clearly the clause that matters in this kind of case. Um, it, it, and 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 the that's the constitutional basis. Does affirmative action on the basis of race? violate the Equal Protection Clause because it's not treating people equally on the basis of race, 
or is it com is it consonant with the equal protection clause because the whole idea of the equal protection clause is that you need to do a bit of affirmative action to bring black people up to the level that white people have been at because black people in the 18 until the 1860s in the south uh, were legally subjected to slavery. And, right. and so and you were saying... a period where the Supreme Court said they couldn't be citizens in Dred v. Scott. Grizzly decision, yeah. So, so then the laws in question, mainly like Title VI and Title Seven, and there the thing is that the Title VI says universities can't discriminate in admissions on the basis of race, and Title Seven says universities can't discriminate on the basis of gender or sex. And Title VII has been interpreted for the last 50 years to mean that you can't have a box to check, you know, are you a man or a woman, boy or a girl? And then the admissions office kind of gives you a bonus point or a minus point for saying you're a man or a woman. There can be no bonus point or minus point for that. And so it's like, well, if that's what no discrimination means in terms of gender, why does it mean something different in terms of race? And that seems like a really strong argument, right? It's like, you know, Congress passed these two laws at the same time, and they both say no discrimination on the base of. Uh, surely it must be interpreted in the same way. If the one prevents affirmative action, the other one must prevent affirmative action too. And that feels like a very compelling argument. Here's the problem with that argument. Ever since those Title VI and Title VII was put in place, they've been interpreted such that discrimination means different things in the different contexts. Uh, now, you might wish that the English language worked like this. You know, every word has only one meaning. But open a dictionary. Words can have different meanings. And so it can just be the case that, you know, this word in this context means this, and this word in a different context means something else. Now, there's a principle of law called stare decisis, which we discussed and everyone knows in the Roe versus Wade case. Stare decisis means it's very difficult. You really shouldn't change, overturn a previous court judgment unless you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely have to. Stare decisis considerations are the strongest in interpreting ordinary laws. So exactly this kind of case. If you say Congress passed these two laws, Title VI, Title Seven, and we think for the last 50 years, people have been misinterpreting Title VI as different to Title Seven. The proper way to read it is that discrimination means exactly the same in both cases. What you're saying is that you as the court are coming in to save Congress from itself, that Congress passed this law 50 years ago, and that no one noticed in Congress in the last 50 years that it's been misinterpreted. Because if someone had noticed in Congress, if Congress passed this law and then it was misinterpreted, you know what Congress could do and does do all of the time? It could pass an amendment to the law to make it perfectly clear. And you're saying... And, <laughs> and, and I think, I think here, here's a point about the US system, and which is not recognized. You know, in the British system, everyone's like, yeah, no, Parliament is sovereign. Parliament is the biggest thing. Legislature controls the show. America... Power is more split, but actually Congress is the superior branch. I hate this phrase, co-equal branches, because they're not. Congress can get rid of the other two. Yeah, It can whatever it likes. If a supermajority of Congress decides it wants to do something, it can do 
pretty much literally anything except change the constitution because it needs the input of the states to do that. But otherwise, yeah. it's got free reign. So exactly. So 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 the court. I mean, if they make the decision on that basis, I don't know some like you know some some of the people we know kind of think that's the basis to make it on. Dude, I think if they make it on that basis, that would be a serious tragedy. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're all smarter than that. But you know, that's the kind of example of like you could use a really stupid way of getting a good outcome, and but that's going to do more damage than good. Um, saying, oh, con- we know Congress's mind better than its own, just, you know, despite this being like a very obvious and public issue for the last 50 years, Congress didn't have the ability to pass an amendment to f- uh, secure the definition that it wanted. And so we're going to step into the plate. That's just not going to work. Okay, so what's left? The constitutional argument um, that, uh, you know, affirmative action is just totally blocked. Y- you were saying correctly that you know from the from the after the civil war after the 14th amendment was passed america had affirmative action in lots of different places especially in the south uh, you know universities that were established that said we're going to be 50% white 50% black because we want uh university students to be together um we think that's important for nation building we think it's going to have educational benefits and so on um and no one at the time managed to get any of those policies struck down on the basis that they uh, were inconsistent with the 14th Amendment. So the original intent right. didn't seem to be inconsistent with affirmative action. Those universities were often struck down by the Ku Klux Klan um, in white hoods. <laughs> with Who don't like the 14th Amendment. <laughs> Who don't like the 14th Amendment. And so Justice Jackson... Yeah, exactly. New- so in like, kind of the 14th Amendment was was almost sort of written for this purpose. You could That's her point. She's like, if you want to do historical, original intent interpretation, history and tradition and original intent, it seems like the 14th Amendment is not blocking you from affirmative action. In fact, it's kind of the constitutional basis for why affirmative action would ever be allowed. States and the federal government were trying to pass these laws to help um, uh, bring about some kind of racial equality. Uh not of outcomes, but of, you know, a kind of uh, citizenship and respect in the face of the law. And they knew that this would require affirmative action. And they knew that if they didn't make this amendment, it would be difficult to know how this can be allowable. And so they passed this amendment in part to allow affirmative action. That's her interpretation. I don't know the history well enough to know whether that's right or wrong. I know that there are previous Supreme Court judgments from the last few decades that have a very different interpretation of the history and that sort of say... You know, the equal Fourteenth Amendment is saying exactly what it seems to say. Uh, You know, equality before the law, no fingers on the scale. Where they did try to, you know, fundamentally socially engineer rewrite the South and integrate it and end racial uh, justice, all sorts of things like that. Um, It failed, unfortunately, in many ways, uh, as social engineering often does. But uh, I think she's probably got a strong point there. So, I so I don't think that you can easily strike it down just on the basis that any affirmative action is wrong, which is what some people would like to do. Then there's this question of like, okay, is it the case that all of the affirmative action that has ever been deemed constitutional, consistent with the 14th Amendment, was re- redemptive? There was a particular fault and issue that was identified, and affirmative action was applied in order to address that particular fault. And there, it seems like maybe the, the, the answer is yes. 
And what makes that interesting in this case is that, you know, previously universities would say, we've got this racial policy, we want more black students, we want to integrate, whatever, because there's, you know, we've just come out of this de jure, the laws have been racist against black people, we're trying to fix that. There's a specific problem we're trying to fix. But here, Harvard and UNC have both said, we're not trying to fix the past, we're trying to build the future. This is not a redemptive thing. This is a, they say, our interest here is we think that we have a compelling educational interest in having a racially diverse student body. In other words, you're going to come out smarter in some sense if you've been to a version of Harvard that has racial diversity than if you go to a version of Harvard that doesn't. And it's that positive interest. We, we're trying to build the best for our students. So, you know, we build swimming pools and art uh, museums and we've got uh, rugby teams and Princeton always beat Harvard. Thank you. And squash teams and so on. And the point of doing all of that uh, is uh. <laughs> we think that it makes you smarter. We think it, make, it makes you, in a very deep holistic sense, it makes you come out a better candidate. Um, if you've got all that stuff and one of the factors we consider to be important is, is racial diversity. So that's like a beautiful argument, actually, because it's not this like chip on the shoulder, oh, we need to fix the problem. History is always going to be a shadow looming right. over us. It's like, no, we, we're saying this is better than the alternative. It's not that we're trying to fix the problem. Is, we're trying to build is, it, actually, is, it, is it actually true? Does I, having okay, but before we get there, people around let me just underline the point that like, even if it is true, it might not be a good enough argument because um, uh, it, it might be the case that the history of the application of the 14th Amendment allowing affirmative action is that it's only allowable if you're trying to get the chip off your shoulder. If, if there's a real problem that's being created and you're really right, trying to address right. that problem. So it's a beautiful argument. It, it, it might be the thing that the loses past, the not to build the future. So there's, so there's a – I don't know what the answer is to that. I'm just saying that seems like a viable path maybe for – the court to strike it down on that basis. Is it really true? Clarence Thomas asked that question. Um, he said, you know, I didn't go to racially diverse university. He went to like an all black <laughs> university. And he's like, so so what is it that you guys are telling me Clarence I don't Thomas, have? <laughs> I think on a personal level, Clarence Thomas hates affirmative action. Deep, like in deep, the deep, core deep, of his bones. And regardless of the outcome, he's going to write a dissent if he's not in the majority that lays out very precisely why he thinks that all of this is stupid. Yeah. And it'll be worth reading. Um, so, so, so he, he, you know, he's like, you know, and then they start laying out the things they say, yes, we think it is good. You know, we've got studies that show that people who have, um, uh, engaged across racial lines in intellectual, social, emotional ways um, tend to uh, have less implicit biases, tend to be better at problem solving, tend to have certain kinds of cognitive benefits. And and he's like, there's two points. The, the one is that like some of the stuff is kind of fuzzy. Like, you know, we, we they're just socially more adept, but there's no really good way to measure that. Um, and it might just mean, you know, um, they're politically more conventional. They're more PC. You know, there's there's kind of a PC test. And then it's like, well, you know, maybe if you hang out uh, in certain ways, there's going to track a kind of PC thing. That doesn't necessarily mean you're better off in any kind of way. He And the, his other argument is like, 
he he remembers he's old enough to remember and have been confronted by arguments that segregation is better because it produces better results uh that it's you know it's less complicated right. there's less noise you and get to focus more on significant things if you're not like <laughs> famously so one he's of America's, like what is what is considered today one of America's great crimes the trail of tears the forced removal of native americans um from the east of the country to oklahoma was justified in part on the grounds that look these people need to be protected um from <laughs> all of this negative Correcting. stuff out there and it would be good if they're all with their own kind in one place and uh, so it's, yeah it's not just black people who have run afoul of that kind of line yeah exactly so so i you know the data that i know the literature that i know is that um that certain kinds of diversity not necessarily racial diversity that 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 it really is healthy to um to be in a university where there is diversity of viewpoints um so right. having you know uh, different kinds uh, of religious intellectual people diversity and, yeah right uh, uh, uh having uh, maybe some class diversity as well so race is a proxy for that um but you know if you can do better and the whole point is harvard's admissions right. test, amazing <laughs> they can do better they don't they don't need a proxy yeah. they can they can go for the real thing um there was one interesting point i thought the most beautiful point was was Waxman was Harvard's lawyer. He's got like a beautiful voice, like a famous hot uh, SH. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Dude, that guy waxed. That guy literally just cuts through justices, interrupts them. He waxed lyrical. He waxed so lyrical. Dude, he is Waxman. Mr. Waxman. It's so one of those names. Anyway, he he was probed by Chief Justice John Roberts on like – Okay, you know, if it's not viewpoint diversity because you think there's there's a better way to get viewpoint diversity, what kind of educational benefit could be left? Isn't you know, it's, it feels just like there's this stereotype. You're like, well, black people think this way, and it's going to add to the diversity. But like, what if there's a black dude who's like, parents went to Harvard, he lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, his dad's an investment banker, his mom's a neurosurgeon. Right. Uh, this, is a, this is a common you... uh, critique of the, this kind of stuff, right? Which is that. You know, all you these elite institutions do is just manufacture a rainbow co- cohort of precisely the same people yes. who all think the same, who all believe the same, who all vote the same, who all work the same. All work the same. Yes, I like that verb. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so Waxman cited the study that, like, you know, went into a lot of details. But he said, you know, he has like he has a, an example. There are three black students in a class. One of them stands up and says something. Um, next one stands up and says, dude, I, I, I think exactly the opposite of that. And then the third one stands up and says, you know, actually, I wasn't going to say anything. But you've said this. You've said that. I disagree with both of you. And that was registered by everyone in the room. And I think I don't think you really have to stretch your imagination to, to imagine that everyone in the room really did feel like they got a great educational benefit there because uh, the the non-black people and the black people both had a concrete paradigm exemplar of of stereotype busting. So in semiotics, we talk about, you know, the message, the receiver, and the sender. And so the viewpoint diversity is about there being different kinds of messages. And you assume if you've got different kind of senders, you've got different kind of messages. And that's the proxy, and that's silly. But there is this esteem team point that I often make, which is like, you know, 
you kind of are stuck with this badge and it is uh, the same content uh, coming from me as it is coming from Sithler that BE is bad. But for racialists, for other people who do have racial bias, they're going to index it differently because they see me as oh, belonging have to one. Important to the project. Exactly. Right. And so That's there is this very special weird thing where even as a non-racialist, one has to acknowledge that sometimes uh, uh, you're going to get further delivering a certain message if it's coming out of uh, one racial block versus another because of how that's going to affect the other people who do care about race. And Well, also, yeah, because it deflates so many of the racialist arguments about how uh, we... That's what I mean, yeah. Uh, right, exactly, right? Because uh, <laughs> racialists will say, so, oh, and, you're just saying that because you're white. Uh, well, And, and, and one of the not? fascinating... What, what if I'm... I'm, what if I'm a rainbow. I am a rainbow. <laughs> so he has a fascinating point. In the in the UNC case, the lawyer was trying to argue that, um, you know, and some of the justices were trying to argue that it's like, uh, it's not just the box that you tick that says you're black or Hispanic. And you can choose not to tick that box if you want. But if you tick that box, you get a plus. But they're like, that's not really where the plus is coming from. It's coming from like your essay. It's coming from whatever. It's, it's like an integral part of you and you spell it out. Waxman said, firstly, he blew Jackson and Sotomayor out of the water because they were trying to do this thing of saying, you know, it's, it's one factor of many. So it's, it doesn't necessarily make a difference. And Waxman conceded on Harvard's behalf, like if it's one factor of many, but you've got thousands and thousands of applications, that means in some instances it will be the deciding factor. Um, sometimes race will be the deciding factor. I thought that was a very useful sort of point of clarification because the, the, the um, uh, progressive justices in the, in the first half, they spent like an hour going back and forth on that point. I didn't think it was particularly helpful. And he cleared it up because, you know, he's coming from that side who, uh, uh, anyway. So the Waxman said the following about the tick box. He's like, here's why we need the tick box and it can't just be about the essays. You know, because the conservative judges were making this unhelpful perhaps argument that you know race should only come in if you want to brag about your race brag about it in essays he's like harvard wants sometimes to be getting black students that aren't bragging about their race in their essays who don't consider their race to be an integral part of where they're coming from who just tick it on the box because you know that's how they're identified um and happen to not consider that to be a very important part of themselves and it's that combination of what your race happens to be and what your views happen to be such that the viewpoint might not be diverse. But what is diverse is seeing that viewpoint come from someone who doesn't look like everyone else. And that is going to impact people who've come to the university with some stereotypical impressions. And who can doubt that even at Harvard, there are people going in there, a significant chunk of students that go in there who do think all black people uh, or almost all black people are kind of woke, left-leaning um, right. social identitarians right. who think that their race is a very important thing. So I'm not saying that this is actually what Harvard is doing. Waxman might not necessarily be representing Harvard's, uh, you know, entire <laughs> emphasis, uh, the way that it really works in admissions. But maybe he is. We, 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 we don't really know. On the facts, again, you just sort of run up against this veil of ignorance. But on that basis, you know, it's like if, 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 a, if a university administrator wanted to make sure that like, you know, that there are 
quite a few black students and that there are enough black students around that uh, no one's going to be able to make the mistake of thinking uh, they're all thinking the same way because there's enough numbers that there you know there's some conservatives and there's some progressives and there's some atheists and there's some religious types and so on and so forth you know would that help i did i i i i think in a in a loose and vague sense the educational benefit argument is real um i i just look at my own experience at Cincinnatians. part of what helped me to have the confidence i have to be a non-racialist is that i grew up in a amongst other things at high school in a boarding house uh, where most people were black and I was confronted on a daily basis by the distinguished individuality of my compadres. I think that a lot of white burden supremacists that I come across, a lot of um, black pride uh, uh kind of neophytes that I come across in the media, in the political space, people who are afraid of, of relaxing and relieving and liberating South Africa from race law. I think a lot of it is because they, they often in, in so many telling ways seem to be stuck on the thought that all blacks are kind of essentially the same or all whites are kind of essentially right. the same. And I think that it's because, you know, in, in oftentimes in the in the white case, it's because they did only know that one black person, or they knew two or three. You know, they in, in formative years, they did develop stereotypical attitudes because they they indexed the experiences sure. that they had to uh, a, a colleague a limited number of individuals. A colleague Tiago um, says that he had a very limited experience of white people um, back in the day, and that this contributed to the fact that he was basically a racist and part of the EFF. Uh, exactly. Because he, he literally just didn't know what they were like. <laughs> so if he, were, if he was at a school, it, at his high school, if there was like 20 white kids in his grade, you know, um, he would be so much better protected against the propaganda of dudes who say that all whites are like this and all whites are like that. And, and, and so anyway, so, so I think that um, Clarence Thomas is probably going to come out right that like if you're studying maths or accounting or um, uh, dental surgery, like how racially diverse your class is is probably not going to make any real difference to your educational benefits. But if you're going to a place like Princeton or Harvard or Yale, precisely the point of the extra million rand a year that you're spending or whatever is that you're not just learning a particular set of skills that you could kind of glean off of a, a computer algorithm, you know, if it was good enough. Uh, it's that you're also learning some soft skills. You're, you're learning how to navigate the world in a worldly way. Uh, you're, you're tapping into a very sophisticated cosmopolitan network and, and gaining the advantages of, of various kinds of diversity that come from that. And so I don't... So everyone in the case other than Clarence Thomas, all of the lawyers, in fact, you know, even the lawyers arguing against UNC and against Harvard, they all agreed racial diversity is a good thing at university and that it does have an educational benefit. This is the long-winded way of saying like, okay, Thomas asked a good question and, he, and you asked that question too, but I think that it's very hard. I think there is an answer and I think the answer is that racial diversity is good at university um, uh, because it has the potential of helping 
uh, crack. What's the phrase you used earlier this week? Crack the stereotypes you talked about in the elections, and we're about to get to the elections. Um, but having having diversity can crack the stereotypes. So, 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 so let me just say, legally speaking, just because it has an interest in racial diversity doesn't mean that it's allowed to break the law. If the law says, you know, you've got to try and avoid, and the law does say, if you can avoid it, you shouldn't be taking race into account. Um, and, and they're saying, well, we've got a compelling interest. It's not just that it's a good thing. It's that it's such an important and essential good thing that if we can't get it in a non-racial way, we have to be allowed to, to break what would otherwise be a very important rule uh, in order to get there. So just because it's an interest, just because it's a good thing, doesn't mean it's good enough to justify breaking the law. Now, that's the, 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 the standard that was established in the like Grutner case, like 30 years ago, and this other case, 1978, the, the standard that was established there was that it's a compelling interest, that universities are allowed to say, here's one of the things that we want to do. We want to have racially diverse classes because uh, it, it's going to have an educational benefit. And that's such an important interest that if there's no other way to get it, we're allowed to get it by affirmative action. Now, that's the thing that they want to overturn that's another route is just to say that it's not a compelling interest. It's a good thing, but it can never justify. And the argument for that is that racial diversity might be a good thing on a jury. But a, but no voir dire process is allowed to exclude or include anyone on the basis of race. Uh, sure, you might wish that the juries were racially diverse, but if they come out all black or they come out all white or they come out all Hispanic, whatever it is, that's okay. You can never include or exclude a juror on the basis of race. And there are a couple of other examples like that where the courts have established and it's never been challenged, like very, very clear, even though there's an interest, it can never be a compelling interest. We don't defer. We set the rules and, you, and you've got to play within those rules and those rules say no affirmative action. And so they'd be saying, you know, the courts have had made that kind of ruling about a whole bunch of things. Uh, they then said there's a different story for university applications. And that was a mistake. That was a departure from the proper one and only way of interpreting the 14th Amendment. And so we've got to return to that. Um, it's a way of doing things that I don't know the law well enough to see if it's justified. A again, just on the basis that other affirmative action has been allowed. Um, right. Yeah, I don't, so I don't quite a precedent. And, and it isn't like this isn't the same as the higgledy-piggledy that produced Roe v. Wade. No, it's not exactly. So, um, for so, one, there's a bit of the Constitution actually written on the subject, which helps. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the final, the final way to try and get there is the narrow tailoring argument, which is to say, okay, look, we defer to we, we say Harvard, UNC, um, the Fourteenth Amendment does allow for affirmative action. It does allow for affirmative action to make the world to build the world rather than just to address a past fault, to build a future rather than just to fi fix a past issue. Um, so those first two tests you've passed. Um, and we say that, you know, uh, Title VI and Title VII get to be read in different ways. The word discrimination can have multiple meanings, and Congress is clearly okay with it being interpreted that way because it hasn't rewritten the rules in the last 50 years. Uh, so, so, okay, affirmative action, if you need it, to get a racially diverse class in order to get the educational benefit of racial diversity, then you can do it. But only if you, only if that's the only way. If there's a non-racial way to achieve it, you've got to go non-racial. 
And we think that there is a non-racial way that you can achieve it because you can just uh, ask students what their parents' income is uh, and make that an important factor in considering who gets in. And, uh, you know, we've taken previous, we've taken all of the information that could be shared uh, uh, from previous uh, application pools and we've given it to computer modelers and they have generated outcomes where, you know, uh, it's in it's racially diverse. You know, maybe it goes from 14% of the class is black to 10% of the class is black, but more of the class is Asian and from different parts of Asia that are just like clearly adding to diversity and more of the class is Hispanic and less of the class is white. Less is white. Um, and, you know, it goes from the 99th percentile in terms of academics to the 98th in the country. So it's still 90, it's still the top 2% in, in the country in terms of academics. Uh, it's super duper strong and you're still getting some athlete, athletic and uh, so on and so forth uh, and some legacies even just not as much. Uh, and all you have to do is reduce the amount of legacies and increase the amount of poor people that you accept. And this is what you're going to get. You're going to get the racial diversity you're looking for. You're going to get the academic excellence that you need that characterizes Harvard. You're going to get a whole bunch of other good stuff that, that you need and you don't use race in your policy. You, you go for a race-neutral way. And if, if, if that works, if that's good enough, if that keeps Harvard as Harvard, we can't compel you to, you know, obviously there'll always be a way to get a racially diverse class uh, if you just completely change your criteria. But we say that this is still like a Harvard incoming class. It's still going to be like a Harvard incoming class. You just didn't use race. That... Uh, if if you can do it that way, you have to do it that way, and you can't keep using race as a proxy. And the strongest argument for that is not actually the models. It's the fact that there are states like California that have banned affirmative action at university applications for the last 50 years and have nevertheless produced the best public universities in America, the most racially diverse universities, uh, the, the universities where you do these questionnaires on implicit bias and whatever, and you get the best possible results. In fact, you know, it's like some of the wokest universities in America, Berkeley and so on. Like they have Stanford. Dude, no one can say that Stanford's a, a bad university. You know, Stanford versus Harvard, I think Stanford often wins. Um, and Stanford's in California. Is Stanford in California? Yes. Stanford. Yeah, right? So, um, So the proof is in the pudding. Like if you, if the court were to ban affirmative action the point is that the universities would still be able to achieve diverse classes they'd still be able to achieve the the educational benefits that come with it if they exist um they would just be doing it by uh using i guess poverty as a race for as a proxy for race and and really the good thing is what they'd be doing is they'd be enhancing the real kind of diversity i think that's the most likely way for the court to to find against Harvard and UNC, which won't really be overturning the the precedent, it'll just be saying now the time has come that you need to do it in a different way. It's maybe just me projecting onto the court because my philosophy, as I laid out at the start, is that affirmative action is wrong, but sometimes you're in extreme circumstances where it's justified. It's like war. It's like um, quarantine. Uh, it's like so many other, it's like killing someone. That's the wrong thing to do. But of course, of course, if someone's trying to kill you, you can defend yourself. 
Of course, Steve Biko establishing a blacks only student union was doing the right thing, of, a justified thing. Of course, uh, there are moments in Nazi Germany where you know banding together by race to try and push back against the oppressor is the right thing, justified thing. So for me, the interesting thing is not to try and make a rule that says it's always okay or it's always wrong. The interesting thing to try and see is like, when have we gotten to the point where, yes, it was okay, but it's not okay anymore? And I'm kind of hoping that that's how the court is going to find it because I think they are really smart people. And if that's how they apply their minds, they will um, – They'll give us a really good way of looking at it. They'll write well, you know. They'll point to interesting facts and they'll and they'll use interesting syllogisms. Um, I'm a little, I am a little bit worried, and it, and maybe my worry is misplaced. I'm a little bit worried that they're going to try and rewrite history going backwards and say, you know, it's not just that this thing is wrong now; it's that it was wrong all along. Um, right. That's a, uh, look, <clears throat> dude. I, you know, I think the court and its current way is is actually quite cautious in a lot of things. So I don't think they will do that. Um, uh, yeah. Should we... Anyway, uh, that's, me. that's me. I think let's transition to the elections. I've, we, I've, mm. I've, uh, I've gone longer on this than I was uh, planning to. I'm sorry, man. Uh, but, so, dude, it really is a... Yeah. It's a really interesting thing about these midterms, right? Is how the polls said something along these lines. This is really close, everyone. Like, the Republicans are probably going to do it, but the Democrats are looking surprisingly resilient. Um, and we've got these headline numbers. Democrats in the in the generic ballot. So that is, you know, if you ask people across the country, all things being equal, candidate, take the candidate out of the equation, would you vote for a Democrat or a Republican? It's a good sense of, like, you know, how the electorate's feeling at the time. That wobbled around during the election, but generally speaking, it was pretty close to even. Either Republicans are hit by a tiny bit or Democrats are hit by a tiny bit. Uh, so the polls were saying that. But then people are very nervous of the polls, right? Because there have been places, as we saw in 2020 and 2016, like in uh, Ohio and Wisconsin, where the polls missed by like 8%. And you go, well... I don't know, hey, should we just take this thing at its face value or should we look at the numbers underneath to see what maybe we can we can glean from this? And that's where the analysis started to change from this is going to be really close, too close to call, to Republicans are favored. And uh, one of the reasons for that was something like you look at what is the issue that voters care the most about? Well, it's inflation. Yeah. Uh, the economy, inflation, right? And who's more popular on that? Republicans by a long shot. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, you also think, well, you know, the polling errors in the last couple of years were in Democrats' favor. So maybe every time you just subconsciously add two points onto every poll in favor of the Republicans. Yeah. Um, and what was quite interesting is, so 538, who, who I follow quite closely, um, these election modeler guys, uh, Nate Silver and Nate his Silver. and Galen yeah. Druk, yeah, yeah. Uh, they have three versions of their model. They have the light, the uh, the, the the extra, and then the deluxe version. Yeah, and each one layers on more levels of analysis. So the light polling is just they plug 
the poles and nothing else into their computer simulation. And then that produces a probability of who's going to win the election. Then the next two, they add like, for example, how strong is the economy? How popular is the president? How um, historical patterns? Yeah, historical patterns, what the expert sort of like Cook political yeah. report and such have called the races. What was really interesting was the Cook political, uh, sorry, the, 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 the deluxe version. So that is including basically the experts and the so-called fundamentals, stuff like the economy. Yeah. Uh, push the Republicans way up. Mm. But there's an interesting thing. You can't put candidate quality <laughs> and you into the equation. And yeah. you can't also necessarily gauge from voters how they make their decision. Someone might say, oh, I really care about the economy. But they also may not be telling you in the survey what they actually are going to vote on. Um, and so it's a little bit like, like that one's a little bit like I saw this study which said, um, if mm -hmm. you ask men, uh, how dark they like their coffee, <sighs> dude, men want their coffee pitch black, they're, they're, <laughs> they're the center of the universe, black hole is not black enough to be as manly as how I want my coffee. And like, do you like milk and sugar and from and froth? It's like, no, I want the blackest coffee want to be like clint eastwood gunslinging and then you look at the coffee they actually buy and it's it's pretty you know middle of the road so there's so this difference between this how is, we think of ourselves and, yes. and how we actually act or, or, or when you ask people how many hours a day they've worked oh this is another Lord. good example yeah everyone says they work more than they do except for some tiny group of ex like extremely uh, self-confident people <laughs> so uh yeah i think uh, i think what's uh, this is a sort of guiding principle for me is that when you ask people their opinions in statistical analysis they often lie yeah and not just often lie often don't even know what they're talking about because just think about it every time it, someone answers a poll or a question or a survey, you're usually like on your phone doing something else at the time. And then suddenly you get this, this questionnaire yeah. or you're in a very sort of sterile environment, like maybe a university or something. And it's like, okay, dude, can I push against this? Yeah, go ahead. So, so my pushback against this is that um, you and I both knew that the Republicans were going to win the house. The Republicans are going to win the house. Um, oh, I well, said, on, we'll get there, we'll get there, but okay. maybe not. No ways. Okay, I said that the Democrats. <laughs> my call was that the Democrats would uh, would win the Senate. Um, the reason I made that call was I said it's going to be extremely close. It's touch and go, but like you know, gun to my head, which one do I think it's going to be? I think it's going to be the Dems because. Uh, the pollster that briefed the Hoover Institute three so, weeks ago said it'll be the Dems. And you know what? I think the Republicans are going to win the Senate. At the moment, it looks like it's going to uh, be a tie, 49-50 tie, and it'll come down to Georgia, and the Georgia runoff. And the Georgia runoff, uh, if the Republicans win it, the Republicans will have the Senate. If the, if the Democrats win it, it'll be a tie, 50-50, and that means the White House tiebreaker so yes, vote. Yes. Is it? And so, so I'm just trying to say, like, I think I'm wrong on the Senate. Like, I called it one seat wrong. Yeah, but, I but called it for the Republicans too. So you um, got it right, probably. And but, no, but no, that no, doesn't uh, seem to invalidate. I, I think it'll go to the Dems, actually. Um, 
Okay, so you think the Dems could win the House and the Congress? This is interesting to me. Okay. I I look at the map and it's like the the Republicans are are a couple of seats away from, they've got 211 seats. They have gained seven already. They've, the Dems have lost uh, uh, nine of the outstanding seats that haven't been, the Republicans are are, are seven away from a a majority. And of the ones that are still being counted, there's uh, uh, more than seven that they're likely to win. No, I, the, the preponderance is in favor of the Republicans winning the House. But here's, here's what I was trying to say with that thing, is that actually when you asked voters the more simple question, they were more truthful. And the simpler question is just who do you, who do you want to vote for? Yeah. And as yeah. it turns out, Republicans by plus one or something like that, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but here's the thing, right? Everyone built up this expectation that there was going to be what they were calling the red wave that uh, there was going to be some sort of overwhelming Yeah, but not everyone. You, you, you were pushing everyone. against that because you always noticed that the red wave, that like Obama faced a real red wave, but that's because Obama won uh, big time and then there was this uh, reversion back to the middle, as it were. Uh, I, you know, I think there were nasty things about it and whatever. Um, but when Biden won, he there were a lot of people that voted Republican at the level of House and Senate and Democrat for Biden. So the red here, wave here, already half happened. Here's the argument. Yeah, I agree with that. But the, the, the red wave was going to mean, even if we had a much smaller one than what, what Obama had, it was going to be uh, Republicans with a healthy majority, right? 10, 20 seats, uh, 15 seats up, right? Right now, they're looking at... The estimates are varied, but a majority of something like two seats, I think, is kind of the average of the the projections right now. In the House, correct. Um, The Senate is kind of interesting because of how close it is as well, Uh, which which I did say. I did say that whoever wins is going to be extremely close. (laughs) I think we are seeing We both did. (laughs) So the, the right, though, was very confident going into this, that they were going to really dominate. For a number of reasons. One is the historical thing, which is that midterms traditionally have been pretty bad for the sitting president. Two is that Biden's unpopular. And three is that people care about the economy, are very upset about inflation, and Republicans are strong on that issue. Yeah. So the kind of the belief was, you know, this is our election to lose. Um, and yet now we've got this muddled result where, <laughs> uh, because all the results are not in, there may even be such a case where the Republicans control both the House and the Senate, uh, which is quite interesting. But they'll be by extremely narrow majorities. Um, so the Republicans will be with a one-seat majority because ties are broken by the vice president. So if yeah. they get 51. So if one of them defects, the Democrats can win. Yes. And in the House, if just a couple of congressmen defect, then... The yeah, which is you know very easy to happen. Like you can have three congressmen. The, the Congress people are extremely diverse. Uh, yeah. They're loyal to their own constituencies. They don't have to worry about the right. national news. They've got, I mean, and we've seen that like in the last couple of years, Joe Biden has not been able to do lots of things he wanted to do because a couple of Democrats uh, were like, no, we don't want to go along with this. Um, we'll rather vote for the Republicans. And uh, what was it, Joe Manchin? Right. Like, the, the first you know, version of Biden's uh, so called Build Back Better bill was was taken down by Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema. 
um, when well, how much money did you want to spend? It was something stupidly big. It was just many four, trillions. Four, four trillion. <laughs> they were like that. You counting the trillions on your fingers, then it's a problem. Only one finger. <laughs> <laughs> so he eventually, they eventually did pass a bill. Uh, the Democrats, but it was much reduced <laughs> from yeah. the original plan. I think it was like four trillion to one trillion. So you know that's good. But so 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 I, I okay. So I mean I think the um, the polling point is that here's the thing that I'm trying to say about polling. Like I have and 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 this is because I'm an IRR guide and I think our, our polling is like such a great value add. You know, so I don't know. Take that with a pinch of salt. Maybe I'm just like. A dude who who sells polling, and so I overestimate its quality. But I went into this looking on five thirty eight. I you know I went into this a month ago with this, these pollsters who said, "Look, we think that the Republicans are probably going to win the House. The the Senate's going to be extremely close. We think the Democrats are probably going to pivot." Um, and so, that was a data point. And the next data point was you know the day before looking on five thirty eight, and five thirty eight said the Republicans have an eighty percent chance. Of winning the house, dude. If I'm I totally go in you. to anything with well, an eighty percent yeah. chance of winning, uh, that doesn't mean I'm sure to win. That means there's a one in and, five chance that I'm not going to win. Right. And if the Republicans <laughs> and end winning up by winning, one seat, winning by yeah. one seat is still in that eighty percent chance of winning. It's in the eighty percent. So that means yes. you know you, there's like a fifty percent chance you're going to win by by twenty. No, you yeah. have that so, healthy majority. And then there's like so, a chance that you're going to win by just a little bit. I, you know, I just think that's the. Yeah, I think I think I think I think I gave perhaps the wrong impression coming out of the game on this, which is that you know I do have some skepticism about polls and things, but at the same time, like they're so much better than anything else. Yes. At the end of the day, uh, because the fundamentals put the the the, the fingers uh, on the scale of what was not the outcome. Yeah, the fundamentals made it. Uh, look wrong and but but they do bring out the point that i want to push you towards which is that the the republicans could have in a sense should have maybe even um done much better than they did so you know there wasn't a red wave you know in a sense there already was half a red wave and now there's like another third but like there's definitely not been a tsunami which is weird given that the economy is so brutally bad and, and americans right. tend to and, go and, back and to here's the Here's so another why? stat based off of okay. based off of exit polling. Um, just to, so so for Republicans, there are more Democrats in the U.S. than Republicans. For Republicans to win, they have to win a significant advantage amongst independents every time. Yeah, and that means uh, that that winning independence is really the key to Republican victories. And it, they can't just juice turnout endlessly because unless the Democrats completely fail to juice turnout. Which certainly didn't happen, right? One of the ideas of why the Republicans were also going to do well was that a few months ago the Republicans had a more than ten point lead in enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, that yeah. collapsed. By the yeah. time election day turned around, the, they were people were like, "Oh, yeah, exactly." Right. So in Pennsylvania, Democrats won independence fifty eight to thirty eight. In Arizona, they won independence fifty five to thirty nine, and in Georgia, the Democrats won. Independence fifty three to forty two. So something is wrong when you're not winning yeah. independence. Now, why might you not win independence? Well, it's usually independence. There's a lot of fake independence. People who say they're independents, but they're actually always vote Republican or always vote Democrat. But there are also true independents, and they tend to like candidates on a much more individual ad hoc basis, right? 
which is why they're independents. So they'll vote for a guy who they think is maybe charismatic, or they heard a woman, a, a, a female candidate who did some great thing, and they'll vote for her. Whatever. Um, generally speaking, though, one of the big turnoffs for independent candidates is a perception of being uh, radical, crazy, or untrustworthy. <laughs> And <laughs> I know exactly where this is going. <laughs> yes. So the Republicans had very contested primaries, um, as they often do, and they have been having for a while now, because ever since the collapse of many of the Democrat uh, control of parts of the country during the Obama years, there's been a very uh, thick pipeline of ambitious Republican politicians coming through the system, trying to make it to the big leagues. And you often had these sort of six-way races where there were like six candidates who were all getting a significant share of the vote in a primary. Hmm. And there was a thing that could always swing it for you in the, such circumstances, and that was often the endorsement of Donald Trump. Of the, and he did yeah. this in a number of places. Um, one of them was, was Pennsylvania, where his candidate Oz, Mehmet um, um, Oz, won. Formerly was, Dr. He, Oz think, with Oprah. Yes. Sidekick. <laughs> Formerly also of the Turkish Armed Forces, but that's for another discussion. Um, he won by, I think it was less than, a, it was like half a percent over his primary. It was opponent. so tiny, yeah. Yeah, and the, 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 that was generally the difference because of Trump's endorsement, right? Yeah, without that. Um, in Ohio, J.D. Vance beat out two other uh, Republicans. He was third until Trump endorsed him, and then suddenly he came in first. Blake Masters, another example, that he didn't just have Trump support, he also had um, a lot of money from his former co-worker, Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal. Um, and the, the other one was the was Georgia, where Herschel Walker was convinced to run by Trump and then endorsed by Trump and backed by Trump. There were also numerous House members. And the, the main thing that Trump would... So Trump doesn't just hand out endorsements, he also attacks and he attacks he attacked you in the primaries if you did basically one thing which is that you said that Joe Biden won the presidential election in 2020 legitimately wrong that, yes that would get Big Trump to get very very angry <laughs> if you say point. Joe Biden is the president you are a liar and i'm going to tweet at you uh, and it wasn't just senate candidates as well it was also um, governor candidates, people like Doug Mastriano in in Pennsylvania, who was at the January 6th uh, riot, basically. He was at the rally. Um, and I can't remember the guy's name, but the Republican Senate candidate in, in New Hampshire. Turns out, independent voters really don't like it when, without a lot of evidence, you suggest that the previous election was stolen. Uh, and because of Trump's influence, a very large percentage of the Republican Party had taken on this line. But there was two types of ways of doing it. There was the, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, that election. There's some question marks. There were some questions I have. Yeah. Right, That was the smart approach. Then there was the sure way to get Donald Trump's endorsement, which was the them line Dems have stolen the election from us and yeah, we yeah, need to I have a, 19, uh, a 1776 moment to retake the country from these monstrous savages before they get turn all about Get your guns, <laughs> get your beef jerky. We're right. going on a, on a hunt. We're going to Washington the, to hunt us some dams. We're gonna we're gonna hunt some liberals. Um, <laughs> the, the most we're the hunt example, 
the, the quintessential candidate of this version is, a, is someone called Lauren Bobert, uh, a gun rights activist from uh, from Colorado, who was elected in 2021 in the last uh, in the presidential election, and has already made her a name for herself as one of the Trumpiest of candidates. And I'm not afraid to say things that I will say are perhaps a little bit controversial, like uh, that the <laughs> that the that that the the separation of church and state must end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which you I'm, told at the church hall. I'm um, going to get my Bible. I'm going to hit people. I'm going to hit those well, lids on the head with my Bible so hard they're going to come out right. Well, how she regularly calls um, Ilhan Omar of the squad, another disreputable character, but for very different reasons, uh, a, a member of the Jihad squad. <laughs> this is the kind of candidate that Trump was basically pushing on the Republicans. And as it turned out, this is the kind of candidate who independents tend to not like very much. Yeah. Um, so there is a story now that, the, and, and there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that the Trumpier you were, the worse you did in the election. Let's take Lauren, for example, right? Lauren Berber. Let me pull up the latest results here on ABC News. The race still hasn't been called yet because it's one of the tightest races. Uh, Colorado's third congressional district. So it's rural Colorado, the west of the thing. If South Park was a real place, this would be where South Park is. Yes. Right? Like real kind of. Uh, I think the Republicans, I think Lauren, when she won her election and when Trump won here, it was by sort of eight percentage points. So Wait, pretty this, healthy yeah. margin. Right, big, big, big majority. Eight percentage points is huge. She's not up by. Uh, is, she's up by one thousand one hundred votes. Yes, out of <laughs> uh, over three hundred and twenty thousand votes or something cast. One thousand one hundred and twenty-two, Nicholas. Don't uh, don't sell her short. <laughs> one thousand one hundred and twenty-two. <laughs> she may win, but looking at the counties that are still yet to deliver their results, the blue counties still have more results to deliver. Ooh, she may lose. There's only five percent left. Yeah, it's really touch and go. The margins are so small. Yeah. Like this is this is about as close as congressional elections can get. I know there's a there's a seat in Iowa somewhere where every time it comes down to like sixty votes and they have a recount in a court case because it's so close. <laughs> <laughs> but, lawyers, um, they call it lawyers' paradise. Right. So somehow, what should have been a lean too likely our seat has been turned into an extreme toss-up. And I think it's difficult to not conclude that Trump's influence was at least partly to blame for that. Trump inspires incredible loyalty among some people, but that loyalty is firstly lessened when he's not on the ballot, and secondly, as much loyalty as he inspires, he also inspires an enormous amount of uh, anti-loyalty. Loathing. Yeah. Hatred. So, and, um, and the the obvious and the big time example is the is the Pennsylvania Senate race. If the Democrats yes. win the Senate, it's you know one way yes. to think about it is going to be because they won uh, with Fetterman, who had a stroke earlier this year, and so can yeah. hardly speak. Really flubbed the debate, but can't, he was going up against. Cannot, Oz. cannot process conversations. He cannot hear words and interpret them correctly. Yeah, like that's so, that's I mean, a bad stroke. It's a really bad yeah, stroke. That's, that's the dude. The dude has put himself through. I actually, it's kind of shocking that someone would do this to themselves, but he has put himself through one of the most stressful things you can go through in public life. Um, 
while yeah. suffering from what is clearly a really hectic health thing. So I hope it gets better, but yeah, you know, putting yourself through a stressful thing like that is not going to be good for your health either. But so, so he's done it and he's won, you know, Oz lost. He's won. Thumbs <laughs> no. lost. So, 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 so that's part of the picture. And if I can just flesh out the picture, the other side of it is that, you know, the, the grand Republican victory is Ron de Sanctimonious. Ron de Sanctimonious. Yes. Who, uh, in Florida, uh, a state which he won by, I think, half a percent back when he first became governor in what, 28% yeah. in, in 2018. Um, one up by more than 10 now. And when he was doing his like little ex acceptance rally, you know, the crowd was chanting two more years, two more years, uh, because they want him as a way of saying, you know, we only want you to go and be governor of Florida for two years, although it should be a four year term, because we want you to go into the White and House be president. and mm. be president of the country. So DeSantis has clearly been um, since Trump lost in 2020. And even since before that, when the Republicans started asking themselves, what do we do after Trump? Uh, DeSantis has been the the favored candidate. Right. His, his star for... has been rising in a very big way. Sorry, he won by 19 points. <laughs> it's huge. It's huge. I mean, the Democrats... It, you it, what, it, what was you a mean... swing state until five minutes ago? Yeah. This is always... Florida's always the whole reason since we were little kids, since 2000, when they did the recount and the Supreme Court kind of decided the the thing and you know it's like it's been a very very touch and go state it's very purple very could go either way and this guy won by 20 points it's it's uh it's amazing i think that and 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 so the and so the the narrative is where these trumpkin candidates that are alienating to independence manage to win the primaries and get on the ballots uh uh, the Republicans either lost or they won by very, very slim margins. And by greatly uh, reduced majorities. So, uh, in, a, another in a world where they should have been um, dominant. And, and, okay, yeah, another example? Right. Uh, Pennsylvania governor race, that's another great example. Uh, Doug Mastriano, you know, really big. He, he basically said that if he was the governor, he would make sure that the Democrats couldn't steal the election like they did in 2020. So he was. That was like a big part of his whole thing. He got crushed, fifty-six to forty-two, yeah, uh, in a it's state huge. that is that voted for Trump, yeah, in twenty sixteen. So, I mean, part of what's exciting about that is it seems like you know people who voted for Trump, people who really liked him, a significant portion have sort of changed their minds after the January sixth thing and are saying, look, we we're not into that anymore as much. Um, we're not saying that everything you ever did was wrong, but like you know, we've got to. Uh, we're not supporting candidates that are just going to make that decision. Okay, but so I accept the narrative, and you and there are more examples. But I accept the notion that the fact that important Trump-endorsed candidates have failed to perform well in an environment where generally the Republicans should be doing really well, and DeSantis, Trump's main opponent within the Republican Party, has did really well. Like if that kind of doing wellness is tsunami. You know, the word tsunami, like if, if you had, if you, if you scaled that across uh, the country, the, the Republicans would be running the show. And so the thought there is that, that you come out uh, of this election with Trump a little bit uh, hobbled, not by no means so wounded that he's uh, going down, but slightly but weaker. Definitely than in a weaker position than he was because uh, he was, I mean, before, if the Republicans had done very well, I think that he would have been 
not bulletproof, but pretty close to bulletproof in the next Republican primary. I think he would have had been a clear favorite. So in a way, um, just assuming, look, it's, I'm not, it's not a secret. I, I, I'm terrified of Trump becoming the Republican candidate in 2024 because I think you need a good candidate, and I don't think he can be a good candidate at this stage. Um, in a way, the, the notion, I also think that the Republicans, I think America probably benefits, certainly, I'm very confident America benefits from the Republicans taking over the House because Biden has spent too much money. And if the Republicans taking over the House means that they, yeah. sometimes Look, Republicans can be useless this way, but if they can spend the, less money. If and the Democrats are holding on by the thinnest of majorities, i.e. like a one seat majority, which if they do manage to hold on will be the kind of majority they have. That's also probably going to block things because you just need one defector then. Great. So, 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 so Nicholas, should I be happy? Is this kind of the best possible election outcome? Like a really huge red wave would have been terrible. If the, if the Dems had done extremely well, the, the spending taps could just stay open this kind of produces a little bit of gridlock, which, which slows down inflation, hopefully, and at the same time sends the message back to the Republican Party, its voters, its base, its media house, and so on, that, uh, that, that Trump is not going to take you all the way there, but DeSantis might. And so we maybe have a, a more, uh, more moderate candidate. Uh, so I think, well, moderate, I don't know, is the right word. Uh, not trying to muddle with elections <laughs> would be preferable. Yeah, he's pretty um, hectic. He's got some hectic things, but he's not He's not trying yeah. to muddle with elections. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, look, here's here's the thing. I think the voters have been quite canny the last two elections. They've sort of done this. They've said, okay, Dems, like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you say to do support all sorts of things. Back in 2020, we had our little, we, there was that flirtation with the defund the police thing, which the... Oh, yeah. the, the the establishment of the Democratic Party was very weak and pushing back against. Yeah. Uh, until after the election, when they lost some seats to the Republicans, did surprisingly badly despite winning the presidency, and apparently on one of their internal calls, um, a purple seat then went on a rant and, and filled with swear words saying, if I hear that phrase, defund the police one more time, yeah. I'm going to throw myself off a bridge, basically, because yeah. that really yeah. hurts us. So the voters said, well, slow down there, chief. But at the same time, they also said, you know, this this orange TV dude, it was fun for four years, but like, you know, we'll pick the, the senile old bat over it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in this midterms, they did a similar thing. They said, yeah. look, Democrats, we're not like super happy with what you guys are doing. But at mm -hmm. the same time, we're also not super keen on some Virginia. of these more wacky Republicans. Yeah. So we're going to give you a mixed scrambled eggs result hmm. uh which 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 uh, this is they the voters have given the republican party yet another opportunity to actually push trump out of the limelight and if they don't take it oh. <laughs> it may not they really oh. deserve to lose for the next thousand years <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so i i agree but here's the pushback to that hmm. um I I did my due diligence and watched some Tucker Carlson uh, on right. Wednesday to see the his take, and his take was as follows: uh, Wonky wonks like Nicholas Lorimer 
called you out. It's amazing. And he called you a wonky one. Uh, oh, I find it on Tucker, guys. Wonky Tom. No, like, sorry, can yeah. I, on a tangent, I, 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 there's, there's an occasional uh, commenter on, on, on one of the uh, Daily Friend things who accuses me of being a uh, mini Tucker Carlson. So I'm, I'm glad that you finally <laughs> called me out because <laughs> it's it's the chickens finally coming home. So 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 Tucker said Wonky Tonks like Nicholas Lamar are going to say that this is about candidate quality and it's about uh, Trumpkin, you know, uh, independents being afraid of chasing away uh, of, of of election deniers and so on. And he said, look, clearly it's not about independent candidate quality because the Democrat, because people voted in Fetterman. So that's showing you candidate quality is not the guy who had a stroke and can't process conversations. Yeah, uh, well, and, and well the here's, election, a, here's one of the problems with that, which is what do people mean by candidate quality? And one of the things that people mean by candidate quality is promise doesn't, you know, doesn't promise to support the, <laughs> the orange lunatic when it comes to election time. And then with the election thing, he's like, you know, we are we also not being be- a weird snake oil salesman doctor from the Oprah show helps too. I mean, help. yeah, like, yeah, as, as, people, as, as many people joked after that result came in, yeah. the people of Pennsylvania would rather have someone who has been crippled by a health problem than someone from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love American politics sometimes. If the Republicans um, had run any of the other candidates for the primary, they probably would have won that seat, I reckon. So, okay, I, I agree. And and you're you're going to beat me at it. So I won't, I, I can't really remember the rest of the stuff Tucker said. But I, but I did, but I'll tell you what the impression was. The impression was um, J.D. Vance won. You know, he, he you can handpick By two several, points Trump. You can handpick several candidates who were Trump endorsed who did win, and some of them who've taken Dem seats. And you say, look, they've got their stories about how DeSantis won in Florida. We've got our stories. And uh, also, DeSantis is not a bad guy. He's not necessarily going to run against Trump. They're all being a bit coy about it. Um, the 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 upshot is that. This election hasn't gone as well as it's supposed to. And the th- reason is the liberal media is biased and it doesn't allow the true message to get through. The reason is that we get ostracized for wanting to secure the vote by, and this is true, you know, there, there really is a liberal media, there, is a, there really is a left-wing yeah. media bias in America. There really, it really true, is the case. Yeah, It's been true since the 1960s. I know, but just hold it. It really is also true that um, in a lot of meet American circles, uh, that you know, just reading the New York Times, it's like you know, there are people who want to repress the vote and people who want to expand the vote. It's never people who want to secure the vote. Someone who's worried about uh, a voting system that can be tampered with, or you know, having people go knock door to door and say, "Hey, look, here's a piece of paper. Who'd you like to vote for?" Instead of requiring people to get out of their homes and, and get a letter or go stand in a queue or something. It's always like they're vote repressing. There's You'll never see in certain important American right. publications the notion that there is a necessity to secure the vote. So there really is a problem of, in other words, what Tucker Carlson can do is identify legitimate grievances 
and use them to remind his audience what it is that they don't like about the world and use that to then justify the thought that, you know, combined with a couple of victories coming out of the Trump corner, um, the way forward is to double down and bring about right. no, I, I, uh, I agree. a Trump candidacy. And I think that, and, and, and I see similar, and I really, um, you know, I don't want to be false equivalents, but like, you know, I, I see the same kind of game being played on CNN. I had to watch, I forced myself to watch CNN and there was just like, Democrats are losing. really grumpy. And it's the same thing. It's like, you know, they they identify legitimate grievances, their, their beef with uh, election deniers, their beef with, you know, uh, with, with, um, some pretty scandalously outrageous language and and and, and wrong-headed policies gets used as a as a as a uh, a lightning you know they basically just get into the same us them you know they become cheerleaders and there's and 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 what I'm trying to say is if you're an American voter who hasn't already uh, discerned the Nicholas Lorimer interpretation of this result you're a center right dude you 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 kind of worry about the Democrats. Uh, having too much power, you'd like the Republicans to get a chance to get back into office to maybe shrink government just a little bit, um, and uh, and and you're looking at these elections. You know what is the chances that the that the but you're busy, so you don't have the time to do the analysis yourself. You don't know the names of senators and congressmen here, there, and everywhere. So, so you rely my... on the media, and is anyone in the yeah. media connecting the dots the way you are? And if no one's connecting the dots, does it really matter? In politics, I think if the tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, then it doesn't matter. And I like your analysis, Nick. I really like your analysis. Here's, I don't here's, know if here's, the, analysis... here's the problem with with what you're saying. One. The, the point I was trying to make here, one of them, is that the voters are actually cleverer than we give them credit for. Right. And you can see it in the way that they reward people like Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp put in some measures which uh, validated the vote, um, as, 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 as you would say there. So much so that his opponent a few years ago, Stacey Abrams, accused him of trying to suppress the black vote. Yep. Now, that wasn't true, uh, but she claimed that the election in Georgia was stolen from her. Because of these in 2018, yeah, no, terrible, right. terrible behavior. Right. Not as bad as Trump's just been, bad. Yeah, he has just been rewarded by the voters because he not only did that, but then a few years later, after being the villain of the day of the Democratic Party, was one of the key people who stood up to Trump and said, "I am certifying these results from the Georgia election. We checked them for fraud. We can't find any uh, that would change the result, and as a result." I am backing these. This is how Georgia voted, even though it wasn't my candidate. And he came under very heavy pressure from the Republican Party and from Trump. Correct. And yet he won his primary, and then he won his election against Stacey Abrams again by even more votes than last time. Um, and I think that all over the place, right? Lauren Boebert, another great example, right? This is a red county. This is a very red place. The voters looked at this person. They said, "Okay, like we thought you were just kind of wacky, but you're actually completely crazy. <laughs> so we're gonna maybe vote the Democrat in, or yeah. at the very least, hurt you so that you only squeak in by you know a classrooms full of votes." Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, so that's the first thing is I think the voters are more canny uh, uh, there, um, but Good. also the yeah. the media environment is not. Is, is really fractured now. No one holds the, the, the key of the, the, the narrative here. There are certain circles where certain publications are read. There are certain circles where everyone watches MSNBC and reads the New York Times. There are certain circles where everyone watches 
uh, Newsmax, never mind Fox News, that, or, 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 or uh, uh, One American News Network, right? Yeah, like, Fox is too wet blanket for... <laughs> the, 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 there are some people who don't engage with the news at all except what their cousin posts on Facebook sometimes. There are, yeah. like, the media environment is so shattered that I think actually anyone completely grabbing the narrative uh, it's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, this is one of my more general points about how the internet has changed society in general. So I don't think, you know, early 2000s, you could say liberal media bias was a very powerful force. Yeah. Because, like, CNN had a lot more credibility back then, for one. Um, could say, uh, you know, Republicans yeah. are evil son of a bitches who are torturing babies. And everyone would be like, well, I mean, if CNN says it, maybe we should at least take it seriously. Yeah. yeah Let yeah. me tell you also, and I mean, so, you know, Tucker, I think, is just doing his normal shtick, which is it's us, it's us real Americans against the, the globalist elites who are all trying to mess up your children, ruin your lives, and take away your jobs. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's a necessarily a, a super, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not, unique, it's not that specific. Yes, yeah. it's not that specific to this instance. It's it's like part and of the here's, general. Here's, a, here's some indication that perhaps within the Trump team, there is a bit more concern about what has just happened in this election. Then I would like to read to you a statement by John L. Day J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> News Corps, sorry, News Corp, which is Fox, the Wall yeah. Street Journal. Can't I read this in my Trump accent? <laughs> I, I want to do it in my Trump accent. Okay, you didn't your Trump accent. It's got to be Trump. The Wall Street Journal and the no longer great New York Post, bring back call, exclamation point, is all for Governor Ron DeSanctimonious, an average Republican governor with great public relations who didn't have to close up his state, but did, unlike other Republican governors, whose overall numbers for a Republican were just average, middle of the pack, including COVID, who has the advantage of sunshine, all in caps, where people from badly run <laughs> states up north would go no matter where the who the governor was, just like I did. <laughs> Ron came to me in desperate shape in 2017. He said he was Sunshine. politically dead, losing in a landslide to very good, no very good uh, agriculture com commissioner, Adam Putnam, who was loaded up with cash and great poll numbers. Ron had low approvals, bad polls, and no money. But he said if I would endorse him, he could win. I didn't know Adam, so I said, let's give it a shot, Ron. When I endorsed him, it was as though, to use a bad term, a nuclear weapon had gone off. Years later, <laughs> they were the exact words that Adam Buttonham used to describe Ron's endorsement. He said, I went from having it made with no competition to immediately getting absolutely clobbered off your endorsement. I then got Ron by the star of the Democratic Party, Andrew Gillum, who was later revealed to be a crackhead by having two massive rallies with tens of thousands of people in each one. I also fixed his campaign, which had completely fallen apart. I was all in for Ron. He beat Gillum. And after the race, when votes were being stolen by the corrupt election process in Bowood County and Ron was going down 10,000 votes a day along with the now Senator Rick Scott, I sent in the FBI and the U.S. attorneys and the ballot theft immediately ended. Just prior to them running out of votes necessary to win, I stopped his election from being stolen. And now Ron DeSanctimonious is playing games. The fake news asks him if he's going to run if President Trump runs. And he says... I am only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's really not the right answer. 
just like in 2015 and 2016, a media assault, brackets, collusion, when Fox News fought me to the end until I won, and then they couldn't have been nicer or more supportive. The Wall Street Journal loved low-energy Jeb Bush and a succession of other people who had they rapidly disappeared from sight, finally falling in line with me after I easily knocked them out one by one. We're in exactly the same position now. They will keep coming after us. MAGA! But ultimately we will win. Put America first and make America great again. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> as 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 the, the, the Babylon Bee uh, on Instagram said, selfish DeSantis takes an entire red wave for himself. <laughs> 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 so yeah, look, this guy trump may win and I, here's here's the bottom line i think there's going to be a civil war in the republican party now yeah is there space for republicans who aren't donald trump because i don't think there's a real ideological question here necessarily other than is this man and his family and his chosen successes and stuff is that going to be are they going to set the course of the party is the party built around this guy as our tribune as our hero or are we going to make space for someone else, right? Is, is Trump's star fading? I don't know who's going to win that civil war because I think Trump has proven that he is really good at internal Republican politics. But I do think that he's in the weakest position he's been in for a very long time. Um, I was speaking to someone about the elections and they said that if it's Donald Trump versus Joe Biden in 2024, it will make the ancient Greeks weep that they gave us such a terrible system as democracy. <laughs> so I'm not shy about where my cards are on the civil war here. Um, yeah. But it is worth saying that there are people like uh, radio host Eric Erickson, who has not been a super Trump-friendly guy, although he's kind of converted to the cause. Um, he said that last time there were any problems with Trump, his callers would call in angrily saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a never Trump rhino. You're a traitor. You don't. Uh, Trump is the only thing holding the party together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But he says now they're calling in and they're saying, "Can't he just keep his mouth shut for five minutes? We're trying to win here." Mm. Mm. So look, the ground may have shifted, but then again, that's what everyone thought after January six. And uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I. I think it's an interesting I, I, I liked I liked how you said there's no ideological clash. It's more like a personality or a loyalty clash. It it kind of reminds me of the full nave the way I solve the full nave paradox or, 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 or question. You know, it's like, you know, with, with Ramaposa, with politicians around the world, whatever country you go into, uh, if you're asking other people or they're asking you, you know, Sorry, there's gonna I be things you very slightly. Yeah. There is an ideological clash in that one is very focused on mucking about with elections and the other one isn't. Well, so, so, but hold on. Okay. Um, the, uh, when, 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 when criticizing people, even if it's like, you know, friends, people in your family, people in your workspace, there's always a bit of a question. It's like, well, if you think something's gone wrong, is it because this person just doesn't know how to do it right? Or is it because they're doing what they want to do, but what they want to do is the wrong thing? So are they a fool or are they a knave? Is it clumsy or is it uh, craven, corrupt and so on? And, 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 and sometimes, um, sometimes I feel like 
that's a, a question people ask a lot because it, it, it stops you from getting to the right answer. Classic false dichotomy. If you're saying it's either or, maybe maybe it's neither. And so and so that's why you keep talking about it. Um, I'm certainly not you, Nick. Um, uh, it's a general thing. Um, and I think that th the way to solve the problem is often to look at loyalty because if you're really loyal, and this is you know what all the TV shows, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, The Wire, whatever, all of the TV shows with a fallen hero at the center, all of the ancient Greek uh, tra tragic plays, not all of them, but there tends to be um, a situation where things go wrong and it's not because someone's a fool or a knave. They've got a fatal flaw, and the most common fatal flaw, certainly on American storytelling in the 21st century, is that you're loyal to your family or that you're loyal to some uh, friend or lover or something. The thing about loyalty is that, uh, you know, we are, it, 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 it does help us to be a bit knavish. Like, uh, telling a lie is obviously the wrong thing to do, but if you tell a lie to protect the dignity and honor of your spouse... Uh, then maybe that's the right thing to do. Uh, uh, easy to imagine a situation where, you know, you, Elena's sleeping, her boss phones, it's like, where's Elena? And I'm like, oh, she just stepped out to get some milk. I'll, I'll get her to call you back in a minute. Hang up. Hey, Elena, your boss phone, you're late. You know, that would be, I, I think very few people would look down on that as the wrong thing to do. They'd be like, no, that's the right thing to do. You've got to protect the honor of your spouse. Um, it also makes you foolish loyalty because if you don't criticize the people that you're loyal to, you lie in order to vindicate their honor, you or, or, or try and guard it. You you take away one of the ways that our brains track the truth, which is through critical conversation. So you know if Trump can't ever hear a no because the people are too afraid to tell it to him uh, that are in his slipstream, and when he does hear a no, he you know, says you're out of my slipstream. He, well, according he, to to one aide, uh, he throws ketchup balls at the wall. <laughs> he throws tomato sauce at the wall. You know, it's there. There just is a way. Um, I'd, Heidi Holland wrote this book. You know, Dinner with Mugabe, where she where she really details how Mugabe got into this place where loyalty was everything that defined the world around him. So the only people that had access to him were primarily loyal. And so they would say nice things about him and to him and they would defend him. And it, it, it created a situation in which maximized foolishness and knavishness. People were clearly acting in corrupt ways that they knew were corrupt, but people were also incompetent and unable to even uh, do very ordinary things because they were so... Um, stuck in a series of lies and a, and a web of, of conventions about how to deal with each other that weren't about tracking the truth and were about making each other feel like we're on the same team. Um, I, think that, I think that in a way, the first ideological question, certainly Freud uh, has been, you know, there's a, Mark Soames's take on Freud is like, as a baby, you start out thinking everything the world's out to get you, paranoid, um, and you're amazing and you're the source of all goodness, schizoid, and you are centered around your mom's breasts and whatever. Um, and and the and the mature the first thing you need to do before you do anything else intellectually 
not in terms of gaining skills like how to hold a pen and so on, but to really become yourself. The, the first, the complete step of ideation is to stop being loyal to yourself in that kind of paranoid schizoid way and to stop organizing your social relations according to a loyalty first principle. Um, and then, you know, so there's a sense in which loyalty is the first ideological option. Uh, loyalty über alles is, is, is the first thing that you either tick or cross. Um, and in that sense, there is an ideological clash. And the elections, I would say the elections question is derivative of that. I think the first test is like, you know, here, here is clearly an effective way to go get on with the world. The fact that you use the word tribune. Um, you know, there is ancient precedent for the thought that... That's a word that's, that's often been used by Trump's defenders themselves too. They call him the tribune of the people. It's, it's, it's a, there's a historical precedent, you know. There's, there's a reason to suppose that the best way to get along in the world is to uh, put loyalty uber alles and, uh, and, and, and get loyal to, to the most uh, potent... Uh, righteous force, and uh, and 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 the rest will take care of itself. That does seem to be. I, I don't know. It kind of. I think it's a difficult characterization, and I don't want to be. I think that there's. You know, the, I definitely don't want to join the cottage industry of like you know Trump bashing in order to get likes. I do think that the challenge with identifying that kind of ideological position is that it, it brings up that old joke. Uh, what's the difference between a terrorist and a libertarian? You can, oh, no. you can negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> right? So libertarian, there's a certain kind of libertarian, certainly not proper libertarians like Milton Friedman. There's a certain kind of libertarian that just defines uh, themselves like this. This is their, this is their paradigm. The government is evil. All government is evil all the time. That's what they believe. It's like an anti-loyalty. It's like loyalty to anything that's not government. And there is a certain logical consistency. There's an internal coherence to right. being... The kind, uh, of, the kind of people who, who, when they hear about Waco, Texas, don't just think, oh, man, this is all a bit of a mess. They think, those people were heroes who were killed by the feds for being different. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that... Uh, you know, the, there is a sense in which if if someone has committed themselves to loyalty uber alles, they are beyond negotiation, or they, they they're beyond a kind of they're beyond persuasion. You can always negotiate through Batna, um, but but that's that's a reason to think in the Civil War. You know, is there? I'll, I'll finish with this because we're way over time. Is there? Any scenario in which the Republican Party does not survive the Civil War? Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what does Trump wins, not surviving? I'm, I'm like, is there a world in which Trump wins the the, the Civil War and uh, holds on to the Republican Party and is kept alive for long enough by his doctors that uh, that a political that the John Kasich types need to establish a new party and that new party ends up uh, competing. The two party system basically means that there can 
having that competing thing won't last for long. One will win out at some point. I agree. So is there a way, what I'm saying is, is there a way that a splinter group, uh, that Donald Trump manages so well to hold on to the Republican Party that a new party needs to be formed? And it can call itself the true Republican Party or or whatever, but that a new party, that a, a new banner has to be erected under which a gathering occurs, which... Uh, by the time Trump dies, or certainly after he dies, is able to beat. Uh, yeah, no one, no one. In terms of the structure, no one sensible will do that. What the if Trump wins again, the, the internal battle in the Republican Party, his detractors will go back into the shadows as they have for the last couple of years, and they will wait for another opportunity to fight again. Hmm. Hmm. But, but that may mean the Republicans will lose uh, a couple of elections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I suspect, I, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to kill a political party, particularly in the modern era, and particularly one that's been around as long as the, both the Democratic and Republican Party has been around for. Mm-hmm. In two years from now, we may be talking completely differently as Kamala Harris is elected. <laughs> <laughs> I, just for the record, I think that that's rather unlikely for a large number of reasons, uh, prime among them being that Kamala Harris is one of the few politicians more unpopular than both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm wazing. I'm wazing. I'm wazing. Um, <laughs> I, okay. I just, before before yeah? we close off, there, there's one last thing that I don't really want to dwell on because like you said, we've gone long, but um, one of the interesting things about this is the Republicans do seem to have increased their vote share among minorities, not as much as they would have liked, but among both Hispanics and black Americans possibly reaching double digits among black Americans for the first time in a while, like healthy double digits. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that. And we talked about that in, after the 2020 election, it was one of the sort of. The trend seems to be continuing is, is, is yeah. what I'm saying. And I think um, that, and the really exciting thing is like, uh, I'm trying to remember this New Yorker. I haven't read the New Yorker in a while. Um, uh, columnist. Um, Adam Gopnik, anyway, I can't remember, <laughs> who, who uh, had, uh, whose editorial line for many years had been just not to mention uh, voting by race block. Um, and again, it's because, you know, there's, you know, what you can be to, doing two kinds of things when you, when you uh, identify votes by race block. One thing you can be doing is saying, look, this is how black people vote. And yeah, there's some exceptions, but we're saying generically, if you're a proper black person, this is how you vote. Right. If you're a proper white person, this is how you vote. Um, and you can be sort of in that sense, reinforcing the code of conduct aspect of racial identification. Another thing you can be doing is saying, look, it's split. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, within this group, there's diversity. Um, and, the, and, 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 and as you're saying, the split is shifting. Um, and it's shifting in a direction that further undermines the notion that you can use race as a proxy for political preference. Um, and that's exactly when we were talking about that Alabama gerry- gerrymandering place. You know, the more yes. of that, that happens in so many different ways, the healthier society becomes. And it's a little bit like that Waxman point about the three black dudes at Harvard uh, disagreeing with each other. Um, that's, that is a kind of uh, a, a good in and of itself, uh, I, I think. So I just I just wanted to read on this a tweet from a kind of center-left guy called Noah Smith. And the tweet reads as follows. Hispanics, vote 55% Democrat, 45% Republican. 
Democrat Twitter. Here's why Hispanics are a bunch of white adjacent fascist sympathizers. <laughs> Republican Twitter. Here's why Hispanic immigration is a plot to create a permanent democratic dominance. And yes. then below it, he's just put a gif <laughs> of someone smashing their head against a table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really gross thing to try and to lump. That's, you know, in philosophy, when I, when I studied philosophy properly, it was such a nice thing to hang out with the grad students. You know, the guys who were trying to become professional philosophers because it, when they were characterizing each other around the water cooler or while having canapes and, and, and good red wine, um, it was lumpers or splitters. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of technical areas, do you think that colors and numbers are the same kind of concept or do we need very different rules for categorizing? And, you know, what about physical objects? What about mass? What about energy? And you'd have lumpers who would, you know, say, yeah, it's all kind of the same. And there's just these like uh, different versions of the same thing and splitters who are like, no, no, no. You know, clearly energy and mass are completely different kinds of things or clearly numbers and colors are completely different kinds of things. Um, and, and because it was so abstract, it, it was kind of fetching, you know. It was, it was sort of a way, it, like, this weird tribal thing. And especially sweet because um, some people are really globalist lumpers like Hegel. Uh, and some people are like, you know, lumpers in some domains and splitters in others. And some people are global splitters. To the point where you've got like, you know, monists who, who kind of think every, every little thing is its own thing. Anyway. It's so weird and abstract and esoteric that it didn't have like a, a beefy overtone. Um, but I think that when it comes to race, like the lumpers, like in other words, I'm trying to say in philosophy, it never seemed like the lumpers were right or the splitters were right. And it seemed kind of exciting that you have lumpers and splitters. With race, the lumpers, dude, the, the dudes who want it all to be one or all to be the other uh, are very mm -hmm. frustrating and they've had and they've had a, a, a great ascendancy and and you know I suppose if we can connect the two um, topics of conversation, you, let's assume. Look, whichever way the Supreme Court judgment goes, um, the, the American press that I've checked seems to be ready to acknowledge the challenges to affirmative action in a way that I haven't come across before. In court, the very best thing that Harvard could say in defense of its policy was that we should stop uh, treating uh, uh, race as a proxy for viewpoint and that the, and that the main benefit, uh, the most clearly identifiable benefit of having a racially diverse cross is precisely that it cracks those stereotypes. Um, and this election, as you said on the CRA and, you say, and I have elaborated wonderfully today, is also cracking those racial stereotypes. Um, it's it's an important point to track, I think, because um, there are a lot of things going in the wrong direction, and it's nice to remember something that does seem to be going in the right direction. Um, and it's also an important point to track if I if 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 I'm right in supposing, if it's true that race does play this kind of upstream role in a lot of other uh, social and political games where uh, once people make a kind of silly lumpy mistake with race, it's all the easier for them to make other simply silly lumpy mistakes. And once you dissolve that and, and, and you, and you 
sort of uh, energize a, a, a content of character approach uh, that in turn energizes um, sort of healthful identity markers that are you know the work ethic the the notion of an incommensurable value to aesthetics that's kind of you know no one gets to own the idea of beauty whether it's uh, cubism or or Ghanaian bead work or um, I'm a piano or, you know, Japanese haikus, cultural appropriation, all that kind of stuff gets pushed away. The creative space gets re-enlivened as we, uh, as, as, as the steam market sort of shifts back to a more uh, plausible place, at least on the racial question. So I don't know. I think it's encouraging. Uh, the, just, if nothing else, the way the conversation's gone in the Supreme Court and, and the, and the way the, the stereotypes are being cracked in the in the election. Well, you know, also alternatively, um, the Republicans may still pull out a win in both the House and the Senate. Trump will then uh, manage to spin the post situation as I am the Supreme Lord. The Supreme Court will vote stupidly and everything will fall apart. But let's hope. Oh, that right? No, no, no. I mean, there's, <laughs> no, no, no. There's definitely uh, yeah. So I'm saying the the like the, the racial thing seems good either way. Uh, the something about it, but the but the the, the other things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, you know, I, 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 it's actually amazing. Like, I think some of the people pointing out that it takes a while to count votes in the US is it's fine. Like they they say, oh, stop worrying. This is just how it's done. It's like, guys, I do feel like, especially in the West, where you often are not under a lot of pressure because the presidential election results come in already decided by then. Um, it's like, guys, can Nevada count votes slightly faster? What is it with Nevada? And the, it's always the most <laughs> retarder. It's it's always it's like I remember memes from the 2020 election of like <laughs> the, it says the one person in Nevada who can count apparently. <laughs> Maybe everyone who can count is in the casinos is working. Yeah, in the that's casinos. the that's the thing. Counting cards saying, or something. Counting cards. <laughs> <laughs> whatever uh i i I saw someone uh, it was actually eric erickson saying can't we have like a federal law that says that you have to process uh mail-in ballots the day before or something so that because apparently one of the things with mail-in ballots is everyone you had to verify them like three times um so that takes a really long time to do anyway uh yeah i hope we get these results sooner rather than later because uh, we're not going to be able to put a bow on this analysis until we actually know who controls which yep. which legislative house. Well, I mean, I don't think um, we're going to know with the Senate. I mean, anyway, there's a very good chance we're not going to know with the Senate in any case. In oh, yeah, because Georgia's going to have a runoff regardless, pretty much. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, exciting. Anyway, uh, recommendations. Do you have one? Uh, I have one. Okay. I'm trying to remember mine. Go ahead. What do you recommend? I would recommend the metal band Bloody Wood, (laughs) which is an Indian folk uh, metal band which uh, sings in both, uh, I think, Hindi and um, English. And they are lots of fun. (laughs) So Bloody Wood, I'll put the link in the description. Hells yeah. Um, I want to recommend that I can't put a link to. Oh, there's also yeah. a Botswana and heavy metal band, but I can't remember their name. 
Patricia oh, Jones. dude, I I know a guy who played with them. I mean, I think there are a couple, but not much more than a couple. I know a guy who played with them. This one, heavy metal. Well, it's not he that telling me all about the, to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I want to recommend a movie called Copenhagen. Um, I couldn't find it online. I found it in a DVD store. Um, Daniel Craig is one of the main actors. The other guy is recognizable, but I can't remember his name. Uh, it was made, let's say, 10 years ago. It's about one conversation between uh, Heisenberg and Niels Bohr uh, in 1941, uh, you know, the greatest German and the greatest Danish scientists of the day, two of the greatest um, uh, Bohr, let's say, the sort of father of quantum mechanics, uh, Heisenberg, famous for the uncertainty principle and his and various other insights. And they have this conversation, and it's 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 a it's a it's slightly camp sometimes, um, uh, but it's like just one movie going over and over the same conversation for an hour and a half, playing it out in different ways, um, and. Yeah, I'll, yeah. This is the I'll 2002 go. Copenhagen, not the 2014 one. Just to make that clear, I just looked them up. The 2014 one is about dating women much younger than you. Right. <laughs> it's just right. No, no, it's somewhat not different. That. It's, <laughs> it's even it's even older. It's even older than that. It's anyway. It's um, I think that it's it's camp. Like it's at certain points, it's taking itself so seriously with the like narrated. He came into the room, and. Their friendship was like a fire that struck into flames. And then they remembered that the war was happening and Heisenberg is German and Bohr is a Dane. And suddenly the tension and the awkwardness and the coals turned to ash and the wind blew the ash like dust across the room. And it was quiet. It's like, <laughs> oh my god! Come on, are you, are you gonna? How much are we gonna dwell on this? But, but I think that you, you get through those camp moments. There's really something very, very magical going on there. Um, and sort of a tribute to an old friend of mine who recommended it, a late old buddy of mine. So, um, uh, because there's no link, maybe I should uh, add a linked thing uh, and whatever well, that's going to be. I'll add the me. IMDb page to that movie. Okay, there we go. That's that, that. That's more than sufficient. That's my recommendation. I think is a really good movie. Cool. Really. All right, and with and with that, all I can say is uh, keep that flag of liberty flying. <laughs>